perspective thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Healthcare Board, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. That works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Phantom Galaxy podcast, the crossroads where science fiction, fantasy, and horror meet. I'm your host, Nathan Bartlebaugh, and tonight I'm not joined with Bill Van. Nah, I'm not joined by my co-host Bill Van Vagel. This is going to be another X Files roundtable episode. So instead of one co-host, I have four. So we're going we're going to talk about season four of the x-files tonight this is the ongoing series you can check out the first three where we basically discuss each season in depth uh talking about sort of the context of where the x-files was at the time that it started uh, in each individual season what was going on surrounding it involving the actors the showrunners and then also kind of what was going on in the world at the time we've done this for the first three seasons and we're going to do this for season four and before I go any further with that, I'm going to bring in my co-hosts that are going to help me go through each of the episodes, a little bit for each one, and then talk about the entire story arc towards the end. So up first, I have uh, Victor Rodriguez. Victor, how are you tonight? Hey, good, Nathan. Great to be back. And uh, thank you for inviting me. It's really good to hear all you guys again. Yeah, it's I'm going to be awesome. I'm super excited. Victor is, is an author. He's written a anthology book, The Sound of Fear. He has a podcast that essentially narrates that book and then also provides insight into the writing of the stories called Inside the Sound of Fear. And then we also have with us Karen Wagner tonight. Karen, how are you doing? I am doing great. And yes, thanks for having me to come back. Um, excited to talk uh, season four of The X-Files. Yeah, I'm really excited too. And Karen was on for the last, uh, for season three, I think was where you joined in with us. And then uh, we also have uh, from Canada, from 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 Bill's land, if you will, we have, we have Dave Roy, who also is the host of the Great Fright North podcast. Dave, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, eh? Hey. <laughs> no, hey, thanks for thanks for having us again. This is going to be so much fun. What a great season this was. I know. And hello, I'm super all excited. the co-hosts. Phantom Galaxy listeners. Yes, and then finally, and last and not least, we have Tommy Wood from the Real Talk podcast. Tommy, how are you tonight? This is where I put tumbleweed music in. Like, <laughs> Tommy, can you hear me? Yes, Tommy. He's on mute. Tommy, is he on mute? He's on he mute. is on mute. Is he? Man, I always do that. Sorry, Nathan. <laughs> no worries. Uh, just leave all this the in. Files theme music in there. Yeah. <laughs> just leave all this in. People will be like, "What's wrong with him?" No, I'm glad. Uh, glad to be joining. I blame that. I'm. I'm. 
under the weather today, but you know, Nathan, you told me, come on, we've got the X-Files to talk about. It's like that scene in Pulp Fiction, you know, when they plunge the the uh, the stuff into Eric Stoltz's heart. <laughs> the adrenaline. When you right told there. me the X-Files. Yeah. When you told me we could talk X-Files, that gave me the adrenaline to get on here and to get healthy again. That's right. Tommy, whose who's pursuit of the truth <laughs> is so, so intense that he came on in the midst of being sick, but... Hopefully you weren't stung by any crazy genetically altered bees, which I'm sure we'll be talking about uh, tonight. I'm hoping not. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I'm, I'm really excited to be back. I'm glad that we've gotten this far. Um, again, I feel like once we get past five, it's going to feel like, okay, we have to go all, you know, we're going to have to go the, the, the distance. So, uh, yeah, season four of The X-Files. This is running from fall of 1996 i believe it actually starts in october of 1996 and runs through uh to the to may of 1997 and at this point we've had the first three seasons something uh, just a couple notes about this up front from my perspective i and i think it's it is kind of clear the show does get sort of progressively darker i think every season has gotten a little darker in terms of storytelling and things like that and in a lot of ways, I do think that season four sort of goes darker, the darkest yet, and, and so dark in some ways that it's it feels very different from the first three seasons in a couple of ways. Some of these things were intentional. Some of these things, I think, weren't intentional, but they were a result of a lot of different stuff that was going on at the same time. One of the things I've noted is by this point in 96, so we're just coming out of the summer of 96, and... When X-Files started in 93, science fiction in films and in TV was kind of dead. Remember, we, we talked about that. Uh, I think we had just had Jurassic Park, but science fiction and the franchises weren't, none of them were happening. By the point in 1996, when this comes back for its fourth season, you just had Independence Day as a major box office hit. They've gone on and they're turning Men in Black, that was a comic book, into a show primarily because of the X-Files, right? It's completely feeding off the X-Files. Uh, Star Wars is now back on. We're getting the re-releases of the original trilogy, and Lucas has mentioned he's making a new one, and uh, they're making a new Alien film, and so suddenly everything's back on the table. All the it, when X Files had everything sort of to itself, and now it's it's one thing in this big field that's opened up again. And I feel like what they kind of have done to distinguish themselves is they go darker, and I feel like there's a lot less of the science fiction or the it's not that some of the ideas aren't as weird. There's still some weird ideas, but it seems to move away from as many monster of the week, kind of, like the really kind of uh, almost 50s pulp monster stuff that we would see in the first three seasons. It seems, at least to me, like there's a little bit less of that. There are also a lot less humor that dominates an episode. You'll still have Mulder and people like that cracking jokes. I don't know if you guys felt that. There's just a dis even the like one episode here that I think is intended to be humorous has a very dark like psychological undertones to it. The small potatoes mm -hmm. episode, but oh, it, did yeah. you guys feel that at all? That there's a I don't think it hurts the season, but it just felt like they they're definitely like okay, it's time to get serious. <laughs> It yeah, it feels darker. Absolutely. Yeah. I wrote down, I felt like there was a lot of fear and sadness in this season, too. Yes, that's a very yes. good way to put it. But a, a couple things very quickly is that for season four, one thing that I think is interesting is, yes, we're in full swing when in terms of the popularity. And because of that, uh, there's a lot of other things going on at the same time. So 
at this point, though, they went from having this is the most viewed season of the X Files. I think it becomes the season yeah. that was uh-huh. the most viewed, and they went from being like the fifty fifth most watched show the year before to being twelfth in when they. Hey did Nathan, was was this the season they moved to Sunday night? I remember that was a big deal when yeah. that happened. I think so. I'm trying to remember now if this happened at that point or not, or if it was it actually. Is. Is it okay? I I knew it was definitely in C. It was definitely on Sunday when yeah. five came along, and I think four is when it did move to Sunday. Yeah, because I think you're right. This is like kind of the apex of the X Files popularity. Because it's been building from seasons one, two, and three, and then I think I don't think it was ever more popular than it was this season. It it's not like it falls off a cliff, but yeah, season four. And Leonard Betts, in particular, is the highest oh, rated yeah. episode they ever You're had. Right. Really? Oh, yes. It, it aired right after the Super Bowl. It was right after the Super Bowl. That's why, yeah. coming yeah, right, out of the Super Bowl, it, Sunday. it was... Uh, that Leonard Betts episode got 17, uh, 17.2, which is, you know... That's a lot. And I think this... What I see here is actually 29.1, 29. yeah, million viewers for that episode. And I think the popularity of this season gave them the kind of impetus to then do the movie in the following season. Well, and I think they've just kind of, they, they've, they, yeah, Fox is kind of pushing at that point, probably because of that, we're going to do the movie. So what happens is the movie gets filmed directly after this season. So obviously right, because that's it's going right. to come out. That's what, that's why five is so interesting. Cause it's sort of made and filmed with the idea that, okay, we have to get to this point. And well, yeah, then you, they must've been planning it already. Then if, if, this, yeah. if the movie comes out the next summer, you're already in pre-production. Right. So they film it directly after season four wraps basically uh, in terms of its filming. And then the other thing that's happening is that you've got a lot of writers sort of leaving the show, you know, or, or at least making the transition right. out. So this is where we kind of move out where Glenn Morgan and a lot of these guys, disappear from the show and morgan had a script that was going to possibly be used in this and then it got um it it didn't get used it was sort of um dumped and so that probably most of the humor that would have been in this season went out the window with that uh, the the ghost of of, uh what's the ghost of the president in the white house oh maybe is that what it was Lincoln's ghost in the White House. Yeah, that's what it was going to be. <laughs> See, it, wow, I want to watch that story. Right, it's hard to tell. Like, <laughs> oh, it yeah. seems like that could go either way. It sounds funny, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, Glenn Morgan, James Wong, and Howard Gordon are basically gone. And then you have, but now you have, you know, uh, John Shibin and Frank Spotnitz, and of course Vince Gilligan, kind of rising to the forefront yeah. for season four. And so the, the definitely the mood obviously changes distinctly. I think between that shift in writers then fr- then of course uh in the in the whole thing here chris carter is going over and doing millennium which is like soul crushingly oh, dark super you know? dark yes. yeah it, it went over i think yes it uh right and it airs this if this airs in october i think millennium starts in like november or at the end of october like right around halloween time it's like they wow. they debut the first episode so they are running concurrently once the seasons get all, get get off and running and yeah that show is so dark and i think you're right tommy that there's sort of uh that bleeds into this a little bit so you had all of that stuff going on and i think it all of that stuff probably contributes to, to why the show is maybe not as not as tightly uh put together as it was in the first three seasons but I think um, maybe uh, it was you, Dave, that said there are some extreme highs and then there are some lows, you know, but that 
I think there's definitely a little bit more inconsistency than the last three seasons. That doesn't mean, however, this isn't still really strong. The last thing I want to say before we start into the into the episodes is that I think here you can really plot the trajectory involves, you know, for three seasons we've watched this show and there's always that question of, you know, Mulder and Scully, they're going to come through this. They're going to be able to uh, defeat the Cabal. They're going to be able to rise to uh, to meet all the challenges and they're going to uncover the truth eventually. And season four is the first time I feel like both for the characters and for the audience, that gets called into question. Like you, the trajectory of where the story goes in season four starts to ask the question of will Mulder, I mean, this is a TV show. We're supposed to be with these characters and they have to survive. Right. But you start to wonder, will they really be able to get out of this and not be crushed by this rolling machinery of this conspiracy? You know, is, is it too much for them? And in the way that some of these episodes go and the way the storyline is built, you do start to have that almost sinking feeling. You said sadness and fear and even a little despair kind of creep into, into these. And that's not to say the whole thing's like dour and, and, and uh, drab at all, but it just, I think as you're going into this season, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have even any of the uplift of some of the other seasons where, okay, they're recharged and they're ready to fight this again. It just seems like it's spiraling a little bit. So, uh, so let's step into Heron Volk, which is the first episode of season four. Uh, I believe when we left everyone, they were being attacked by alien bounty hunters. Is that about right? Yep. <laughs> it picks back up in, uh, in Canada where we have, the entrance of the bees, which become a major plot point, right? A telephone lineman stung by a bee. And then uh, you see five boys walk up, but they're basically five versions of the same boy. And as he's reacting to the sting and he falls to the ground and he's dead, you have the boys sort of walk away and that's sort of the cold open to the show. And I think what's interesting here is we've already got the alien bounty hunter involved and we have Jeremiah Smith, which is this, this character who's like the alien healer, potentially alien. He's the healer and Mulder and Scully have, uh, they've, they've, they've left and they have Smith with them. And then the bounty hunter is chasing them. And as things go, they, they uh, get away from the bounty hunter, though he ends up kind of attacking Scully. And then when he knows that she doesn't really know their whereabouts, he kind of lets her go. And then, Mulder and Scully ultimately end up, they're trying to save Mulder's mother, who's still in in uh, peril, I guess. And the men in black are also kind of waiting in the wings for them. So Mulder agrees, okay, it's going to be too dangerous to go to the mother. So they go towards Canada. And then this is where they meet up uh, because Jeremiah says, hey, you'll find your sister if you go here. And this is where we end up on this farm where there are, kind of multiple versions. It appears to be multiple versions of Samantha, his sister. And this is where the mythology, I think, starts to get really, really odd, but also kind of vague. So we have these bees that seem to be genetically engineered and modified, and they are spreading some sort of potential pestilence. We still have the alien bodyguard, or excuse me, the alien bounty hunter involved. Jeremiah ultimately ends up dying. And... We also lose a major major character here in the form of X is finally taken out in the midst of all of this. Uh, 
action. And I the problem I have is you have all of these action scenes, you have all of these uh, what appear to be revelations, but they don't really explain anything. Like the multiple, the, the clones and the bees, at least in this episode, and I don't know if you guys felt differently, they're not exactly forthcoming with what this matters in the larger plot. It just seems like there's a few new branches to go to uh, contemplate. And yes, these are going to come up again, but we really don't know what that means. And this, the revelation of Samantha doesn't really, it, it's not a culmination for Mulder the way in some of the earlier seasons when he, when he found uh, that he thought Samantha was alive again, this is just almost just really strange. And it, it doesn't really, have the same effect on him and his journey. So it, it, to me, it didn't really solve anything there. Ultimately at the end. And when X is taken out, he sort of points Mulder in the direction of another informant that can help him. And that's when we bring Laurie Holden into the story. But uh, we see the beehives and the, we see the bounty hunter getting sort of uh, killed or attacked by the bees towards the end of the episode. And at the end, you kind of end up in an essence, kind of back where, Back where we were, the bounty hunter ultimately is a cigarette smoking man, comes into the picture. He has the bounty hunter, tells the bounty hunter to heal Mulder's mother. And then we kind of go from there. And, he, and the reasoning he gives is that he, uh, the, the smoking man is like, look, the fierce, en- and the fierce enemy is the one who's, who has nothing to lose and who, uh, when, when all of his attachments have been taken away, he's going to come directly after us. So we need to restore her. That's his, that's his logic that he presents at the time uh what did you guys think about this episode yeah great start to a new season um and and i think the 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 fact that Mulder's sister or at least uh versions of her appear uh is was a really cool move by the showrunners to kind of redirect us at uh, Mulder's main motivation and um the the heart of the series um which is what happened to samantha and it also um shows i think the syndicate uh with the cigarette smoking man coming up with a really cool idea to draw out who is helping Mulder by setting up a canary trap yeah that was which yeah i mean i think that term comes from uh patriot games by tom clancy but uh basically you know when when you have a a group of conspirators and they feel a secret has been leaked. They will leak bad information uh, to their cohorts and see who, uh, you know, who repeats the bad information and then trace it back to the leak. And that's exactly what happened. Um, Unfortunately with Mr. X, who was one of my favorite characters in the series, but yeah. Yeah. Victor. And I was just going to say, I, I hate I hate it when it happened in, when I first saw it, and I still hate that they killed off X. I think it was I think it was a mistake, and I think I think I've even read that Chris Carter admitted it was a mistake later on. So I don't know if they ever truly found a good replacement for his kind of cynical edge that he brought, something just totally different than any other character. And so I I just hate when they kill him off, and I think I just think it was a mistake. And then something you said, Nate, I thought was pretty interesting around. You know, they kind of wind up back where they start. And I feel like this is the start of when people criticize mythology episodes. I think you can kind of start seeing it here where they all kind of wind up where they start in a way. 
And if you want to start seeing kind of the criticisms of that, I think you're starting to see it where it's almost like, do they really have a plan for any of this stuff? And it's kind of like, I don't know if they do. And, and part of that, I think, is due to the the level of ambition here. He meets clones. And I guess the thing I didn't emphasize here, for anyone who hasn't watched the, the, the episodes lately, the clones are of the young Samantha, right? The Samantha that would have been, you know, these aren't like adults. I, what else would you clone? Right, no, but I mean, he's meeting he's meeting her at the same age he lost her. And he goes on through the rest of the season like, oh, you didn't just meet like a couple versions of your sister at this ranch over here. You know, like there are, there are episodes later in this season and later on where he's sort of still, it's almost like, are you going to go back to that farm anytime soon? Or look, you know, it, knowing that all these things are out there, they only seem to pop up in the mythology episodes. It just you know, we're going to bring this back in when we need it. And I think we see the clone stuff pop up again in season five. It just, they bring up such big, weird ideas that in realistically, these ideas would still have momentum. But, you know, Mulder kind of just goes back to being driven by the search for, you know, there's other things that drive him in this season, obviously, that we'll talk about in a, in a little bit. But I guess when you bring up something that big, now we would have that factor into the story more throughout the season you know that serialized storytelling but here it's only right, right. pop up every few episodes you seem so big it's like you just met your sister like a couple times and and uh, it, it is weird go ahead just in the same form she was the thing that's been driving is she looks just it would be one thing if if she's like the adult version but no she's exactly the way you remember her well and you're right too it, like it's Mulder. we we've gotten to know him there's a whole farm full of clones and yeah, they never, you know, the next episode, we don't even bring it up again. <laughs> yeah. That's like, right. he doesn't, that's right. no, uh, he's not, he's not working on it in his, in his free time or on his off time. Like you would think he'd be obsessed with it. Yeah. You could, but it is, I, do, going on. <laughs> yeah, I, I do like though, how they use the clone, like just two. there's only the one boy and the one girl and they behave like drones. They, uh, they relate them to the bee drone type worker you know worker drone i'm trying to get to um it's it's interesting but i you're i think you're right there's if i had at the end of the episode just as many questions as i had at the beginning of the episode yeah. no matter what was answered or hinted at yeah i think that's what ultimately some people i don't mind them as much but some people criticize the mythology episodes because what they ended up training to do especially as the show kept going on was not really answering anything but just keep asking questions adding adding more and more which kind of confused people and kind of upset people and ultimately it pissed a lot of people off by the end of these final seasons (laughs) i think a lot of people like we talked about last uh episode we did this you know julian harrison has finally said i'm not doing this anymore i'm done um karen what did you think about this one so i had uh two thoughts the first one when the cigarette smoking man saves his mom when this aired i thought oh he has like other feelings for her because he was holding her hand in the hospital bed so at that time i thought maybe he had feelings my thoughts have changed since then but that's what i thought at the time and i did think chris carter's thoughts changed i think it just kept changing (laughs) that's probably what it was yeah in the in the beginning um when the bounty hunter comes up on them and Mulder says to Scully, 
um, just stay out of his way. He doesn't want you and don't use your gun. And she immediately gets right in his way and pulls her gun out. Yeah. Like does the exact opposite of what he tells her to. I thought that was funny. I, I guess I, I do that when my parents tell me to do stuff too. <laughs> Made some yeah. miscommunication. I, I did want to mention. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, it said the mis miscommunication. I thought you said draw your gun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to mention my wife was watching this episode with me, and she, I don't know if she's watched the entire series. Anyways, she brought up, uh, she asked about the bees, and I said, well, they're going to use the bees to spread their, I, I actually forget right now as I'm saying that, but she brought up an interesting point. If that's their plan, uh, she's never been stung by a bee in 37 years of life. And I've only been stung once in, in my whole entire life. Like, maybe bees is not the best way to go about spreading your, um, whatever they're trying to spread with the bees. Sorry, I, I, I didn't write that down. They just need killer bees, and then they'll Well, and that comes people. up sort of later. I, 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 I feel like that fullness of that plot isn't really completely revealed until the film, right? The movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe then I didn't know what they were spreading. Yeah. But they, yeah. they definitely kill Yes. Yeah, I'm with David. I I don't know what they're spreading either, but I, I think that this is just illustrating your point, Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> Everything we're saying, this is what the writers' room looked like. Well, what you're hearing right now is the writers' room in 1997. But guess what? The writers' room ended just where we ended too. I don't know. <laughs> it's a thing. It's spreading a thing. Um, Come on, guys. We have 24 episodes. We'll deal with that next week. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and 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 with that, we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did enjoy it. I do. I think the thing is the other, the other uh, season one going to season two and season two into three, those, uh, you know, cliffhangers and then season season finales and season premieres, they were so strong in a lot of ways. And the stuff that they brought up, while they weren't necessarily answers, they created new avenues for the show to go in. Right. So the the different ideas that were brought up in those episodes created new character dynamics in some cases, created new conspiracy angles that really uh, would build into what happened through the season. I think the problem here is these are elements that they were probably thinking of in relation to where the, what the movie is going to be about. And so they introduce them, but they're like the checkoff gun that doesn't get to get fired until season five, and in, in most cases. And so that they don't feel that... Um, that important like they, they seem weird and strange but then they don't seem like they have a lot of emphasis on where the season itself goes yeah yeah they're really good at that and i think the fact that chris carter had a hand in writing a bunch of the scripts this season probably has something to do with it that you know he's sort of guiding everybody and making sure they mention uh, the chekhov's gun yeah. Uh, elements at certain points, um, but yeah, they do a great they, a great job of making this whole series a tapestry that that weaves together with itself. So let's move on to episode two of the season, which immediately is like, okay, we're going to give you a peek into how dark this is going to get. <laughs> and Tommy, I, it's so funny. This was like the 500 pound gorilla in the room that nobody wanted to touch or get near. So, you know, everyone, everyone picks their episodes of this one. Some somehow was still sitting around because it was probably the first one that everybody wanted to pick, but, uh, it's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was shocked that nobody picked this. I picked last for from everybody. And 
I was just going to the episodes and I didn't see home. I was like, whoa, well, what's going on in, here? In season two, you guys let me pick first and I snapped up two of the ones I really wanted. So I thought, oh, <laughs> I, I got, I I'm not going to take the greatest. Like, anyways, th- you're right. <laughs> well, we could all, we could all talk about it. I won't give too much away on it. No, but I sure, agree. Sure. I think this is one of the greatest X-Files episodes ever. I think it's the best of this season. I think it's probably the darkest episode. I think it's one of the episodes I've watched the most, which I don't know if that speaks good (laughs) or bad of me, honestly. And it's the episode that I think, even if you aren't like an X-Files super fan, I've talked to many people, and this is one of the episodes that, that always comes up somehow. It's like, hey, do you remember that episode, the incest episode with the lady <laughs> with no limbs? And I'm like, yeah, I remember that episode. I love it. And the, judging, gauging by their reaction to me saying that will get will will really tell me how the rest of the conversation will go. And if they're ever friends with <laughs> so, you, after that right? <laughs> exactly. I get a lot of you know just disgusted looks, or like, yeah, I agree. But this episode, uh, when it was aired. It was really controversial. I remember that. And I read a little bit about that. And Fox actually, I don't know if they ever replayed it again, but it was one that they basically locked down and would not re-air. So it was so controversial, yes, but also just so dark and violent that it wasn't something they they re-aired a lot, which I found really interesting. It was the only episode to ever carry a TV MA rating, like on the broadcast, the first time it broadcast. And it was oh, a, wow, it was, I didn't know that. It was a couple of years. I didn't see this one until like 99 because I started watching around the time season five started. 99 or 2000 is when they finally like re aired it, like on a Sunday, you know, when they so it took one them, of the reruns. Yeah. Yep. Oh, it took this that episode is, is so ingrained, like burned in my memory. I, <laughs> I remember watching, like, I didn't hear anything about it. It was yeah. just, oh, X Files tonight. And man, I, I remember. Of all the episodes, yeah, this one is so dark and so horror-tinged. I remember what I was eating. I remember <laughs> the evening. It was hopefully it wasn't ruined in my memory. <laughs> no, yeah. oh, no it's, wow. it's usually it's usually Twizzlers. <laughs> yeah, no, I same thing. I, I remember seeing it when it originally aired. I was over at a friend's house. There were several of us there, and uh, they were like, "It's going to be a special episode of the X Files tonight." I'm like, "Okay," and. Uh, it, there is a very sobering message that that they it, they show right before the show going you know some of the scenes are really intense um to warn viewers and i was like okay let's let's go let's with this. go and boy is it ever <laughs> yeah it lives up to the hype in a lot of ways which a lot of shows don't and the basic plot is in a small town called home Pennsylvania. I always thought that was a really kind of interesting way to kind of put it. Cause this is really about kind of quintessential all Americana and the invasion or, you know, the weird things that can happen within that, the outside world kind of invading in that. And a woman gives birth to a deformed baby and Mulder and Scully are called in to investigate once the corpse is found by children during a sandlight ball game and they talk to the sheriff, who is, of course, called Andy Taylor, which is, uh, you know, that's very obvious, the reference there. Um, and they basically meet the Peacock brothers. And basically, they learn that they've been there since the American Civil War without electricity, running water, or heat. And they also insinuate that the family have been inbreeding since that war. 
you're not sure if that's true until you meet the mom, which what I don't I still don't know how they got away with showing. I mean, this is one of the strangest scenes when the mom is rolled out under the cabinet and she, you know, basically doesn't have any limbs and they're feeding them um, through eating the food themselves and feeding. I, it's it's disturbing. It still is. That, eh? Yeah, <laughs> and. And then it proceeds from there. You know, it turns more violent. The The brothers uh, go to the sheriff's house, and there's just a horrific, violent scene there. One of the probably most violent scenes the X-Files has ever done, uh, set to just really pleasing music, which is very off-kilter, very, very interesting how they do that. And ultimately, Mulder and Scully go to the house, and basically it's like an action set, like a horror action set piece. Where they go in the house, several of the brothers get murdered. I mean, it is just epic, that final scene. And it's hard to kind of even re- relay, kind of re-watching it, all the sensations that came back. Because, like you, Dave, I watched this when I first like was a kid re-watching it. And I still love watching it. So, you know, so many of the scenes are just kind of ingrained in my mind. And I think ultimately what I like about the episode is that, first, it's a Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode. Definitely. Oh, it's like definitely. Yeah, it's like their homage to Texas Chainsaw, which they had to do. And Nathan, I remember you said earlier that uh, Glenn Morgan um, and um, uh, James Wong, they left the X-Files. They actually came back for this episode, which I thought was interesting. They actually wrote this episode. Yeah, I think they may have still been at this point, but it's their, the season in, in at large is like their departure, like they're leaving. Right, yeah. Now. That makes sense. And reading a little bit about this episode, it was actually based on a documentary called A Brother's Keeper, uh, which is a documentary about kind of some inbreeding, I guess. And then a Charlie Chaplin-inspired episode where he met a limbless person in uh, Wales, basically, which I found interesting. And then ultimately, I think it's kind of about one of these X-Files episodes where it's about the oddities of, of of America and how the creeping modernization of that world, you know, the FBI basically coming to make everything kind of normalized and modernized. And the peacocks are kind of the last remnants of that older world. And they're trying to fight back against the modernization. And you kind of see the, the impacts of those two, I guess, societal aspects coming against each other. So that's my overarching theory of the episode. Any other thoughts? What do you guys think? Uh, this is this is a straight up horror movie. I, like the opening scene is a dark, stormy night, and you open on a, uh, a lightning storm on a house, and there's a, a you know one of those a scythe, a scythe like for for harvesting wheat. You know, like it, it's just a great opening, and then the whole episode is awesome from there. But very strange. Like you were talking about it being like a, a like you mentioned the American dream. Um, like yeah, kind of, but in a really twisted way, right? Like, okay, these this is a family of, of of free Americans, but man, they're so twisted. Like the the mom's idea of of care and family is just warped and and, and awful. You know, like you yeah, exactly. you can't just do anything for your family. Like it's 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 so perverted. There are but, limitations. But yeah, and and it just so almost impossible not to watch the the whole episode right i'm so tense like we when we're recording this a couple weeks ago i watched the newest texas chainsaw massacre you mentioned this being an homage 
this 43 yeah. minute episode has 10 times the tension and, and like fear Absolutely. factor than that new movie does. <laughs> That's not too hard. Yes. You're right. It's too right. <laughs> but I agree. Yes. They, yeah. I, I feel like this is a wonderfully uh, subversive episode. It's subversive in two ways. I mean, you guys know I'm a huge fan of HP Lovecraft's work. Um, and I, I definitely, that was my first thought in watching this was like, Ooh, notebook uh, found in a deserted yeah. house. Or actually that's, that's Robert Block, but um, no, you're right. you know, that other, I forget the title right now, but there's a Lovecraft story where he comes to an old, the narrator comes to an old house and he finds a some artwork and he slowly starts realizing, Oh, whoever lives here is really out of their mind. Uh, and then of course it's too late. But, um, but I feel like it also sort of stand the, the, this episode of the X-Files stands on the racism that, uh, Lovecraft lived his personal life by, uh, and undermines it. Um, and, uh, man, I, I also just, thought that the other subversive element that I thought was very clever and uh, sort of mean that they put in there was, you know, maybe the syndicate is really awful for Mulder and Scully who want the truth because they undermine them constantly. But because of, you know, their machinations and the new world order, you know, these families of (laughs) horrific people are going away, um, you know, further to what you guys just said. So I, I found that uh, kind of juxtaposition really interesting. That is cool. It is cool because the, the the sheriff mentioned something about how he, you know, he's in love with his small town and it was inevitable that it would change. And even before, before what happens to him, he says like, I'm taking a, a last That's look a around. Yeah. And, um, but it's it's that so you're fight they're fighting against uh, maybe not modernization but yeah, maybe modernization is the right way to put it but maybe some of that modernization might you know and, and culture might have helped a family like the peacocks right like mm-hmm. at least it, they give them is... more breeding options <laughs> I think it's really that yeah that's true yeah. I think it really is that battle between modernization and just the it it kind of reminded me of. Uh, what's the episode in season one where they go to the circus show, you know, the freak show. Humbug. I don't know if I can say that anymore, but, uh, Humbug. Humbug, yeah. Humbug, yes. Humbug. It, it, it's almost two, like I that. Think, right? Oh, season two. Okay. Yeah. Where it's like that has that they're like very odd. They're kind of getting pushed away from the, mo- the modern America, you know, the modernization. They're not accepted anymore. And the peacocks are kind of the same way, you know, in, in America, everything kind of becomes the same in a lot of ways. And so I think there's that kind of pull and tension there, which I think is really interesting. And I think bold move yeah. to have this as episode two in a, like, I <laughs> yeah. imagine that there, yeah. there are, you know, thousands of Americans that are watching the series for the first time uh, <laughs> with episode one. And then this is the second thing they see. It's and thousands right. that will never watch it again. <laughs> well, and it's twofold too, because I think Tommy, you're kind of right on, you're right on the money about the element of the uh, the American dream, but it's sort of like what the peacocks represent. It is so, and it, I guess it was Dave, you were the one who was saying this. It's so um, perverse and twisted, and and uh, just off kilter. And this is what's sort of lurking beneath that that town, right? Like mm-hmm. that the and it's and right up front, they're sort of satirizing Andy and Mayberry and all of those things, right? And what was beneath the the good old fashioned values on 
on like you know uh, the Andy Griffith show. Beneath that was the racism that was blatant in the actors on that show. You know what I mean? And so, well, not even even more than that. Like the whole like the is there a black person in that town? Right, exactly. In, in Mayberry, right? Like I don't think it's so. of its time, but like. Yeah, it's, it's and what is the impetus of these things like the racism and the xenophobia? It's the desire and the the fear of others and the desire to protect what we have. And you see this here. We're so they're 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 protecting what they have to the point that they are rotting. They're so insular and it's become so twisted. And I think that's saying it's like here's the flip side of the American dream. There's you know it's that David Lynch. Here's the 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 bugs come swarming underneath. Uh, all of your great manicured lawns and things like that. And here in the small town yes. the, the, under America, you're quite literally eating yourselves because you can't see a way forward and you refuse to see a way forward. Yep. And that's I like good as, writing. <laughs> as yeah. dark as this episode was, and I, these are my favorite ones, the horror type yeah. ones, the dark ones are my favorites, but it still had, if you were like a, a Mulder, Scully, Shipper, they still had some really sweet moments, like when they're sitting on the bench and yes. um, she's worried about having kids and he says, oh, just find yourself a man with a spotless genetic record and a high tolerance <laughs> for being second guessed. And she looks at him and is like, well, what about your family? And he gives her a look like, oh, me? So oh, I, yeah. I liked that. And I didn't realize it obviously at the time because it wasn't out yet, but those, if those brothers had lived and moved to West Virginia, they would have been that wrong turn wrong movie. Turn, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And I, I just want to point out that, um, yeah, one of the, in, in the discarded baby that is later uncovered and autopsied, uh, by, uh, Scully, um, one of the things she notes that it has, one of the deformities that the baby has is um, a cloacal extrophy, which uh, that's the first time I ever heard of that. Um, and that's, uh, you know, somebody who is born with their uh, digestive, part of their digestive system on the outside. Um, oh my God, which, I had a cat like that. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I guess it's real. Um, <laughs> but I wouldn't have known this if it wasn't for this book that... Huh. Uh, <laughs> That I got, I believe the the author's Paul Terry, but it's called the X Files: The Official Archives. And w what it does is it basically just shines a spotlight on all the things that are sort of briefly glossed over in every episode in these Monster of the Week episodes. And uh, it's I, it's just a masterpiece of of recreating those moments in the show. Yeah, this is impressive, and and I think uh, to. to pull the veil back a little bit obviously as we're prepping for these we kind of start up a like a, a messenger chat and go back and forth uh, about uh, what we're going to talk about on the episode so victor revealed not that long ago that oh he he had gotten this book and then i think karen you you suddenly sent a message separately saying hey look at this book i got <laughs> and then i just uh i finally like uh, you guys had mentioned it again and like just like yesterday i was like okay it's time to order the book and it got here it just got here today but it's impressive. It's a giant book too. So I think, you know, the price tag on Amazon, something like 30 some dollars, but it is, mm -hmm. uh, it's very impressively put together. Like I say, you've got thick cardboard sort of, uh, you know, the way it's bound, but the pages inside are excessively detailed and it's got, it's full of pictures and things like that. But 
it is not it's like what victor said it's not your normal book everything is laid out like the case files it's it almost feels like an interactive you know like guess the murderer sort of thing you could it's almost like you yeah. if you wanted to sort of immerse yourself into this from the perspective of hey what if i was Mulder and scully looking into this case it's like that material but meticulously designed for these cases and pointing out things that you don't like victor just mentioned that you don't necessarily always pick up on in the episode itself and they it makes them for a great companion when you're doing one of these rewatches like we're doing so uh i highly recommend it i have i've only looked through it a little bit but it seems really cool in this episode um and victor you mentioned that it's like you're reading through this new agent going over the old files and i think she even mentions from home that she tried to find the peacocks afterwards yeah and she was never. Oh, that's awesome! Again. I gotta get that. No, I never heard from again. That was it. <laughs> and I think the the way she tries to find it is looking for that song, like seeing if that song shows up in any um, police reports, because oh. apparently they're known to play that song. Oh, yeah. that's cool! Yeah, that wonderful, wonderful. It's a great song. song too. Yes. Yeah. I'll oh, never man. see it the same way again. Ever. No. <laughs> No, I remember hearing that song like growing up, uh, like uh, commercials for like uh, old old hits and stuff like that, and 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 obviously hearing it constantly in this episode puts it in a totally different light. And it's it's um, when you when filmmakers do that, it's it's called playing against picture, uh, where you you put what you would imagine you would never hear when you see something. Uh, usually, it's something awful. Uh, and yeah. David Lynch also is the master of doing that. <laughs> yes. um, he's done that a Victor, few times in his movies. <laughs> you know what you're talking about much more than me, because I tried to say that and I just jumbled it. People are like, what is he talking about? Oh, yeah. Well, that's why we're all here. I, I just saw someone take those new <laughs> Thank you, Victor. Those scenes from the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre where he's running around the rain, flailing the chainsaw around, and they set it to the Benny Hill music. So same kind of deal. It was a huge improvement. Anyway. It, yeah, absolutely. Moving on to episode three. And you're right, such a such a strong ep- second episode right out of the bat. One of my favorites probably of the series in general uh, was Home. And then you come to the third episode. I don't think anyone, I don't think this is on anyone's list. This is called Toleco, and it aired October 18th in 96. And it is another monster of the week. I'm going to read the basic premise of this, and then anyone wants to comment on it can. I personally found this episode to be a little bit uh, derivative Racist? of a lot of things. Well, yes. Well, that's, I, I figure that's the main thing you talk about here, but just in terms of the plot direction of it, it's very derivative of things we've seen, like with uh, tombs. tombs, exactly. And then what's left to talk about is, I think, again, that it comes off very stereotypical and, 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 and racist in its, what it's trying to say, I think. I, I, I feel like it's a very muddled episode. But Scully's called in. She'd do an autopsy of an African-American man with no skin pigment. Uh, Mulder suspects there's something else at play. He learns there are multiple disappearances with similar ties. And Mulder and Scully track a link to an immigrant named Samuel Eboa, who's played with Willie and McKay. And Mulder hears of the legend of the Toleco. And so then it basically becomes we're hunting this creature stealing this pigment and there are there's a mythology behind it that's tied in and i think that mythology and that concept are intended to sort of downplay anything else that's going on in the episode but i think what you walk away from this is 
at least I did, it, anything else in the episode didn't really take away from the fact that it just felt like there were just some a lot of hurtful stereotypes in here that they... I don't know how aware they were when they were doing the episode, or maybe they felt they were doing things in the episode that should be, you know, flipping those stereotypes on their head. But I didn't feel that anything in this episode really worked that well for me. And it, and as attention goes, I felt it kind of fell flat. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, it, it, it doesn't stand up today. So if you're, if you're watching this episode for the first time, you may want to skip this one. It doesn't really impact the rest of the series either. But um, I can imagine that at the time, they I mean, it did employ a lot of black actors, um, for one, in the real world. And for two, I think that they just tried to shine a light on a legend in African culture. Yeah. So that's something. Um, but it, yeah, it, it didn't. It, it's not enough. I think you're right. It doesn't feel malicious. The show never, I mean, that in my memory doesn't come off as... Uh, racist any other time but I, yeah i mean right. times have changed it's it's 25 years old it, it it just you know making the monster from deepest darkest africa it doesn't seem uh it seems problematic today yeah well yeah. i think it comes down to this i think this is the issue and this is what makes it different than say the writing on any other episode where you're right because because the legend originates in africa you have that added element to it but had they developed this character, had they given them definition, the uh, definition, even the definition of a tombs, or even go further and look at the definition of the soldier who couldn't sleep that that Tony Todd played in the season two or three, if they had created a character of that rounded nature, I don't know that we it, that any of this would matter as much. But they don't. Yeah, I agree. It yeah. doesn't hold up very well at all. I didn't think. And just not even just entertaining. I think there's always this lower tier of X-Files episodes. Yeah. Every season has them. I mean, it, it still blows my mind they did 24 episodes this season. Like, most shows now do, like, 8 or 10, and half of them aren't any, any good. So, so like, 24 is amazing. And totally in, every season I always feels has kind of that lower tier Monster of the Week episode where it's not awful, there's some interesting ideas, but they just don't coalesce into something really substantive, and it just doesn't ultimately work. I think that's that's what this ultimately is, really. I did sort of like the mute, like the way Mark Snow sort of like integrates those African drums and the flutes and things in the episode. I think because of the way the episode's written, it seems a little hokey, but I think stylistically, it was kind of cool. He's great. Uh, okay. Well, then, I get, Karen, did you have any uh, comments on this one? Not really. Yeah, this one didn't hold up. for. I don't, I don't even really remember this one that much from watching it before. Yeah, I wouldn't have been able to tell you where it stood in the overall, like, higher, like where it was in the season uh, until I'd watched this again. I'm like, oh, it's in season four. I wouldn't, didn't know exactly where. I, I barely remembered it existed until it started. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I think I have a vague memory of this one. Mm-hmm. And definitely times have changed. I don't think anything they did was intentional. No, it doesn't feel it does. I don't, I didn't sit there watching it feeling like, Oh, this is, this is really um, purposefully insensitive. It's just, there's a lot of things I think we see particularly in this season and in, in all content from around this period in the nineties where uh, there's just some things that just hit the wrong note. And uh, there's a, there's a certain lack of awareness 
that makes that happen where they they're not they're not looking at it from a different perspective they're looking at it from their own perspective uh how about episode four i know uh who has episode four that's me and that is uh unruy which means unrest in german and this episode was written by Vince Gilligan and directed by Rob Bowman. And I read this was the first episode that aired on Sunday nights. So this would have been their Halloween oh, cool. episode. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, Sunday, which I could have sworn that home would have been their Halloween episode. But I guess it was this one. Um, and the IMDb synopsis says photos of a hellish sight from the mind of a psychopath who abducts women makes Mulder think that the man has the ability of psychic photography. Um, I love this episode. Um, The opening scene is really good and creepy. It shows this woman getting her passport picture at a drugstore while her boyfriend is out waiting in the car. Uh, She realized she forgot her wallet, so she has to run out and grab it. And somebody like bumps into her on her way out. And she realizes a few seconds later that this person has injected her with something and it's affecting her ability to walk, to think. And she starts to stumble to her car. Um, And when she finally gets to the safety of her car, her boyfriend has been murdered in the front seat. So she like collapses on the ground. And as she's trying to crawl away, you can see from her uh, point of view that a car is slowly driving up and this figure in a raincoat uh, walks up to her. And then the pharmacist inside, he gets tired of waiting for her. So he opens the passport picture and he had taken this photo of her but what he sees is this woman screaming and she's surrounded by all these little creatures um i tend to find that this kind of episode these are my favorite ones the scary ones um aside from the photography aspect um this one seems like pretty scary it's rooted in reality i mean having a deranged man abducting women in broad daylight strapping them to a chair and forcing an ice pick lobotomy on them that's scary and um i i thought uh Mulder's photography explanation was crazy but not much more crazy than Scully talking about, oh, well, the film was stored near a heat source and it's out of date. Um, Nothing's going to make a person look like they're screaming in a picture. I used to work in a photo lab, so it's definitely not. And um, the guy who plays the abductor, Jerry Schnauz, uh, is Pruitt Mm -hmm. Taylor Vince. Um, And you recognize him. He's been in like a ton of TV shows, a lot of movies, Um, And he's so good in this, especially when he's got Scully. Um, There's a scene where he's screaming at her. Uh, And in real life, this actor suffers from this condition called nystagmus, where your eyes involuntarily move back and forth. Um, Oh, he's not doing that on purpose? No, No. that is something that uh, he suffers from. It's called restless eye syndrome. Oh, I... I did. I've seen him in like the Devil's Candy. I didn't notice that, mm-hmm. but I couldn't. I yeah. couldn't stop looking at it in this episode. This yep. has made him employable for years. He's always this kind of character. I think we yes. I feel like that rain slicker is his outfit in like every movie. <laughs> he has definitely been typecast. Yeah. Now, to be fair, he has yeah. also played 
sensitive, gentle, decent mm-hmm. people in films. He's an excellent actor. Uh, we were before we started this, we were talking about John Carroll Lynch, who's the same kind of. I guess if you have three oh, names and you're too. a good character actor, you can be a psychopath. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's he's super good in this. I remember Identity, and like you said, The Devil's Candy, and and yeah. films like that. But he's he's like the the MVP of this episode. Absolutely. I, I don't know if you looked this up, Karen, but that that ice pick lobotomy, uh, Scully has the the proper term for it. That's real. I know. Isn't yeah. that horrifying? Oh, for real? Man, we do crazy things to each other. Wow. I don't. Like, think, I mean, they don't that, do that anymore, like, right? No, like, but somebody somebody figured that out. Yeah. yeah, they used to do that a lot. I think like it was a right, common it wasn't practice. Even serial it was med- yeah, right. doctors. Practitioners. Yeah. <laughs> you go to the doctor trying to get you know. A physical, you walk out with a lobotomy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I, I, this is one of my favorites. I love this episode. And of course, I always shipped Mulder and Scully. And I love the scene where they're interviewing um, Jerry and he starts taking like a little bit too much of an interest in Scully. And he tells her, you look troubled. And uh, Mulder like sort of steps in the way and diverts his attention to him but um that, to me scary episode it's an awesome episode i i love this one. Oh yeah me too it's probably one of my favorite episodes of the entire series um it is super creepy um and the the moments of revelation in this episode are really gut punches like there's there's a scene where scully's photo is taken and the psychic projection on the photo includes like this six-fingered hand that yes. looks like daggers like mm-hmm. coming at her and that watching this re re-watching this for the for the podcast i i couldn't help think of um the shining that yes. that scene yes. where halloran yeah is talking to danny and the knives are sort of symbolically placed points downward like directly at danny's head when they're talking about room 237 and it's one of those you know many many details of that movie where you're like oh yeah whatever but then you watch it again and you're like ooh, (laughs) bad bad news (laughs) it's funny that you mentioned that the the shining thing because we've been watching the episodes and going back through obviously i've been watching with my some of the episodes of my kids not this one but watching some of the episodes with my wife too i mentioned i said hey you know coming up stephen king does an episode and it's not this season but she didn't know that and she asked when this one was over was that the stephen king episode and i (laughs) really i mean this is a much stronger episode actually than the one he ends up doing but I I feel like that th- this does kind of feel like the Stephen King episode or the Stephen King style story. And I think it's because it's so well put together and it has those weird details. Like you said, Victor, like something that wouldn't need to be in this per se. That's a cool added detail that it adds to how they solve the mystery and, and adds to the character, uh, the, the central character that we're talking about here is that those creatures in the background, right? Like those things in the photograph. Yeah. Are and they those that's a Lovecraft shout out too, right? A little bit uh, that that element probably didn't have to be in here, and yet I think it adds so much weirdness and so much like macabre like atmosphere to the episode, and 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 gives you greater insight into the character, and you it it, it gives him more motivations besides just being crazy or creepy. It's like the devil's candy, uh, not to give anything away, but that film. But but when we realize why that character again, Taylor Brewer Vance is doing what he's doing it's kind of horrifying, you know, like what he's actually, why he's doing it. And 
I think that uh, that's what really makes this work. But it does work as a hard. So far, at once you get outside of the uh, mo- the the opening episode mythology, you have three mo- uh, Monster of the Week episodes that are that are really horror stories. All three of them. I think we've agreed that maybe three the the third episode isn't that successful, but they all are pure purebred horror stories, right? They're not science fiction. They're not uh, conspiracy or even just thriller. They're they're horror stories. Yeah, this one may be a little. You might you might put it in the supernatural section, but it's definitely definitely scary. The last uh, when when Scully is tied down and uh, the uh, what is it? sorry is it Vince Taylor Pruitt Taylor Pruitt when he's, when he's yeah okay so uh, the right word when he's things. coming. <laughs> just backwards uh when he's got her in in the rv man that is a really tense 10 minutes like i was on the edge of my seat i don't know about you guys yes and yeah, he points sure. out that spot in her forehead too yes in that scene little <sighs> foreshadowing yeah. where he says don't you know they're right it's right there and he points right at that spot where something happens to her later yep and the yeah the the details of this episode haunt me like there's at some point I forget exactly how Mulder comes across this information but like one of the photos makes it look like he's he's got really long legs oh yeah yes. yeah and then when Scott, like it's it's a Silence of the Lambs switcheroo like where you know our other hero Scully comes across him and she doesn't have this information yet. And she she's just like questioning this dude who happens to and we know it's the guy and he's on stilts like and you're just like, oh, no, it's him. <laughs> oh, that gave me goosebumps. Yeah, it's super, super creepy. And I think that this is one of those episodes that certainly probably benefits from the fact that uh, Chris Carter is sort of cross pollinating and working on Millennium at the same time, because there's a lot of that in this episode. Yeah. Okay. So then we'll move on to episode five, which is an episode I had uh, that's called the field where I died. It was the fifth episode of the season and it airs on November 3rd, 1996. And it's another standalone story, but it's a, it's a little bit different than the ones we've talked about so far. And it, it does break with the concept of, of, of horror and really it breaks with the monster of the week and kind of goes for uh, the supernatural. I know that when we did our very first season uh, episode about season one and, and we were kind of ta- just talking about our feelings about the X-Files, I remember, I think it was you, Dave, that mentioned, you know, that the, that the show sort of hit scratch that itch for uh, everyone's interest in the paranormal and, 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 and the occult and the sort of extrasensory, everything that had been, you know, through the seventies and eighties that it had been building, and there's like time life books about the mysteries of the universe and things like, you know, uh, uh, past lives and things like that. I feel like this episode scratches that particular sort of itch in a really interesting way where this is really a paranormal episode that if you're someone who's interested in those aspects of the paranormal, it kind of delves right into it. I think it's a really ambitious episode. I think in some ways it's a messy episode. Uh, for me, though, I really, really like this one because it sort of just goes for it. It's it's uh, in earnest too. It doesn't it it doesn't. We've had much more silly ideas on the X Files even this season uh, than the ideas presented in this episode. But I think that because it's so earnest, that there's a possibility in some cases that 
it comes off a little silly and it doesn't it doesn't seem worried about that it just dives right in so the basic plot here uh opens up and you, you we're in tennessee and they were they received this tip that there's someone named sydney who's saying hey there's kids being abused at this compound and this person has weapons there's a local cult it's called the temple of the seven stars and uh so the FBI stage a raid on the compound. Uh, they can't find its leader. That's Vernon uh, Fiji, and he's played by Michael Massey. And a Mulder is there, and he has this moment that can really only be described, I think, as like deja vu, where he starts to envision, and this is more implied than anything you visually see, that there's this field kind of back outside of the compound, on the compound, outside of the the buildings that they're that they're looking in, and he's drawn out there and when he goes out there we hear voices speaking and some of these voices are speaking in his head but there are also voices coming sort of from under the ground and scully's there with him and then they find that underneath the ground there's a fijian and most of his in, in his entourage there he's with the six wives that he has uh he's clearly you can see he's kind of meant to be a stand-in for previous cult leaders real cult leaders uh from the time and he's getting, they're all getting ready to drink the, the bad Kool-Aid, right? And, and die. And Mulder's able to stop them. He handcuffs a Fijian. And in that moment, he makes eye contact with uh, Melissa Radell, a Fijian, one of his wives, who's played here by Kristen Cloak. And he has this moment, a uh, connection, uh, some sort of recognition. And he's not even sure what that is, per se. So when they get back to you know headquarters and skinner is there he's telling them like look they're going to be released this guy and his wives are going to be released in a day or so unless you can figure out who it was that reported the weapons and the abuse and when they are go who knows what happens next i think he makes the comments like this is we're not talking about waco this could be another jonestown you know that where a lot of people end up dead and they are questioning Ephesian. they're trying to find out who is who among you uh is there a sydney there's no sydney and then when they interview melissa she starts to talk like sydney and she's she's also mentioning oh harry truman's the president and she's she affects this kind of strange sort of you know uh i'm not even sure exactly what kind of accent or voice she's doing but it's implied that she's uh she's kind of this rugged guy the the voice that she's doing and it turns out that this initially they're saying hey look she's got multiple personality disorder but Mulder, who's getting these intuitions that he's not entirely sure where they're coming from kind of comes to the conclusion as Mulder does when scully says something that sounds reasonable he says oh no well, wait it's this <laughs> so in this case so she's recalling a past life and then when they go back they take her back to the temple she takes on another personality this is from a civil war time period and she says oh there she tells them where the, the weapons are hidden they're in another bunker in the field and then she tells Mulder that he was a Confederate soldier who died in that field with her or died in that field. And he was like the person she loved. He was her soulmate and that she watched him die. And this is when the episode, I think, gets really strange and, again, goes and goes further than it, it probably needed to, which I appreciate because then it gets really uh, it, it really sort of commits to the concept Uh she goes under hypnosis and she's mentioned that Mulder has met her many times in their past lives and they're always separated or they lose track of each other and they're never together, that there are always forces that pull them apart. But the next time around they find each other again, but 
every time one is taken from the other. And so Mulder says, okay, well, hypnotize me and let's see. And this is one of the, I think, one of the oddest sequences of the X-Files. And yet it kind of perfectly also underlines what makes the X-Files great, that it would attempt to do something like this. And that's when Mulder Duchovny talks about the time he was a Jewish woman <laughs> with a son <laughs> in the, uh, you know, the, the Holocaust. And it, that son, the, the soul or the person of that son was his sister, Samantha, inside. And then his father, who who died, was Scully. And, you know, Melissa is his husband in this particular life. They're at the concentration camp. And then the, the officer who's there is the smoking man. And so... You, he, he's recalling all of this stuff. Then he keeps going. And in another life, in the Civil War life, he mentions that Scully was his sergeant. And then there's she finds pictures of the people that Mulder's talking about, of uh, Biddy and uh, Kavanaugh. And they were respectively Melissa and, or Mulder and Melissa. And she gives them to, to, to Mulder. And there's the guy, he's wearing the Confederate uniform. They, the story kind of picks back up with the, the raid on the compound. I don't want to go too much into where it ends up going other than to say that it really plays with the imagery that, that comes along with those sort of uh, death cults, right? And, and what happens with death cults. And in 1996, we still have, you know, the most recent example is within Waco, but the shadow of Jonestown is still there as well. And I really like how this wraps up. Uh, it's very, um, it has a very existential feel to it, I think. And, and and a lot of things that it's doing in this episode are really interesting because we're trying to build in um, a, pa- a pathos and a sympathy for Mulder and for Scully and, and how they interact with each other uh, that isn't tied to anything big that's happening to them in this moment. But what's about to happen to them for the rest of the season, it's like this episode is sort of prepping that that emotional storyline these are about two soulmates right that are going to be pulled apart and will always find their way back to each other and in this case we're talking about Mulder and this woman uh, Melissa but it seems like it's you know it's obviously referencing and teasing a different relationship of two people that are constantly you know finding each other and pulled apart by these grand forces I love the episode. I admit there's some wonky stuff in it. Particularly, I'm not sure that Kristen Cloak is always that effective when she's doing her little, like, you know, faces and when, when her personality switch. But I think that the whole feel of the episode, when people do that in actuality, it's not convincing either. It's not meant to be. It's, you know, it's supposed to be weird and strange. Uh, for the record, she was married to, or she's, she was a fiance of Glenn Morgan at this time. And so he wrote this episode almost as like a love letter to her about these star-crossed lovers. So, um, yeah, I, I really like this one a lot. I do admit that it is not everything in it works perfectly, but the messiness of it is something I appreciate. Yeah, it's it's a really cool idea to, I, and I think this was the perfect uh, sort of framework for presenting that idea in a, an episode of the show. Uh, I mean, it's it's really when you meet meet somebody new in real life, and you just have an instant connection with them, and uh, it, it's really cool to think that there was some sort of past life where you were very important to one another, and that's why you feel that connection. And this episode sort of explains that in a you know a science fiction context very well. Uh, so I, I think it was it's a fantastic script idea.
Yeah, does anybody else have anything on this episode? Well, I was going to say this one didn't really work for me, but listening to you talk about it, uh, I might go rewatch it and give it another chance. But uh, what I was going to say before you started talking was, yeah, the, the, the acting is great. Everybody is awesome in this episode. Just um, it just, just didn't connect with me. I was a little I was a little I was checking my phone, you know. Yeah, that's how I feel. Never been one of my favorites. I didn't really like it again on rewatch. But Nathan, you sold it well, man. <laughs> <laughs> this is always the way. I'm always like the weird stuff that nobody else cares. <laughs> well, Ethan's like, what do you guys think? I'm like, uh, not great. <laughs> mm. I, yeah, I just, I just wanted to add an, on another positive note. Uh, I thought the music from Snow was particularly yes, great yeah. in this episode. It's a, it's a showcase for him to do something different, I think, a bit. And there's hints of it in this episode that really made, made me feel the impact of, uh, I, I guess it was him. I think he also did the music for Millennium uh, because there's there's some yeah. similarities, I think, particularly the melancholy nature of some of the music in this episode reminds me of the theme music that's in that's in Millennium. Mm. Uh, Karen, what did you think of this one? So when this aired, I didn't like it at all. Um, <laughs> not even a little bit. And I had never rewatched it since then. <laughs> but this time I actually, I, I liked it this time. And I also wrote down the music um, and the cult leader was super creepy. I, I love yeah. movies and stuff about cults. So <laughs> I thought this was, I liked it this time. You know, something else I thought was interesting and strong and also plays into what goes on in this season is Moeller gets sucked into this, right? In a sense, like not, not the cult part, but the, these people that are talking about the past lives and that are buying in on the same wavelength that Mulder's on, they are also a part of this cult that ultimately kill themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. So you see the proximity, you know, we always, why is Scully always pushing so hard not to agree with Mulder? And it's the, it's the fact that, a lot of times the ideas that Mulder shares, the only other people that share these ideas are the serial killers, the psychopaths, the weirdos. <laughs> and then we also see a lot of branching elements of religion here, right? Like they, the some of the ideas that they subscribe to are theoretically some of the same ideas that Scully would say she subscribes to or at least is sympathetic to, but then they've taken them to these extremes. And so again, it's that idea of, you know, Mulder's search for the truth and his belief in all of these things, you know, what level does it become too extreme? And I think that's what the whole season starts to move towards. And they, although it starts to move toward more towards the middle of the season. So it's interesting to have a show like this, that's about something completely different, but is foreshadowing or bringing up and putting on the table, all of those basic ideas. Yep. I would be as frustrated with him as she was, though, yes. because he's so willing to jump in and believe this, but scoffs at her religion, and yeah. it, it's enough to drive you crazy sometimes. And this is one of the first times it seems dangerous for him to do that. Yes. Yep. Okay, so now we move on to episode six, and I think you have this one, Dave, right? Sanguinarium? I do. Uh, let me get the... So sanguinarium means place of blood in Latin. And a quick IMDB synopsis of it. I had it here a second ago. Here we go. Patients undergoing cosmetic surgery die horrible deaths at the hand of doctors possessed by witchcraft. Bingo. So 
Yeah, so episode six, we're doing another horror movie. This time we're doing Satanism and Witchcraft, which is right up my alley. I really like that. And th- this one also, like um, like Home, doesn't, doesn't skimp on the gore. This is a really effects-heavy episode. It's got some twists and turns. And, and it... <laughs> I, I don't know about you guys. I'll, I'll explain what I'm talking about, but it, it kind of makes me laugh. I find it funny uh, in a way. Um, and it, it's like right from the beginning. Uh, how how's, I forget what exactly Mulder says, but he presents the case to Scully and right away he jumps to uh, witchcraft. Yeah, yeah, like, like immediately. That's the yeah, Scully, I, <laughs> well, Scully, Scully, you know, presents reasonable scientific explanations. Oh no, witchcraft! witchcraft. And they're doing a little bit of investigating. He sees five dots on the ground. Oh, that's a pentagram. Like it could be a circle, you know. Like it, it, I mean, I can make a pentagram out of anything. But he, he just, it, it's almost like a, a a stereotype of of what people think the X Files is. Like, yes, yes. Mulder just jumps to, and he's right. He's freaking right about everything. Like he's a genius. It's almost he's looking at Scully like, "Oh, Scully, you're so naive. You know, oh, you and your science. It feels it's clearly witchcraft, honestly." <laughs> but but I, I I just really loved the episode. I thought it was uh, Olin Jones, the guest star. At the beginning of the episode, you think it's the villain is one person, and then there's a twist halfway through. I thought the guests, all the guests in this were great. And um, especially the way the, the, the two, the, the nurse character is definitely a witch. I don't know that you ever uh, really find out Dr. Harrison Lloyd. That's it's, it's uh, Oh, actually, no, sorry. Wrong actor. One second. It's Richard Bamer. He plays Dr. Jack Franklin. Hmm. They're they're both they're kind of on opposite sides, um, and then there's the switch in the middle, and and he turns out to be the villain of the piece. Uh, she was trying to, with sympathetic magic and and Wicca, trying to protect patients. Uh, mm-hmm. She had she's kind of, I think she's kind of been following him for a few years because uh, this 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 I kind of assumed he was a Satanist, but it's not necessarily so. But he's obsessed with living forever and staying young. The only problem with this episode is as soon as you see uh, Richard Braymeyer, he was in Twin Peaks and a bunch of other yeah. stuff. Like as soon as I see him, my Spocky and eyebrow goes up and I'm like, oh, this guy's probably shady. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of telegraphed, you know, I mean, I, I kind of knew he was the villain, him, but <laughs> it's, it, and it is, it's such a fun episode. Every time uh, Olin Jones, uh, nurse Rebecca is doing magic, it's, it's really well lit and good music. You know, she, she pops up out of a tub full of blood, very horror movie. Uh, someone ends up um, thro- throwing up and uh, like the Satanist, basically he, he casts the spell and uh, someone ends up with a gut full of, of pins and they throw them up. It's just disgusting. Perfectly creepy. And then there's a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, a little bit of an homage to Face Off, maybe. <laughs> Anybody else like this one? This is yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's a great episode. No, okay. I, yeah, I really liked it. Um, it's it's got some really cringeworthy body horror moments. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, oh, all of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it it made me giggle too, but in in the way like 
new French extremity movies that I've been watching on Shutter lately make me giggle. Like it's like I come, I, I'm so horrified that I come 180 degrees into like giggling to relieve the tension of. What I, I just picture Victor sitting in a darkened room watching these giggling with eating Twizzlers or something. You know, technically I mean, true. <laughs> plastic surgery and, and uh, you know liposuction are creepy enough on their own. And I, I forget. I think I don't remember which episode you said, uh, Nathan, but just describing it sounds funny well yeah. satanists from beverly hills do plastic surgery and steal your soul like it it sounds cheesy but the x-files pulls it off it can do it yeah, I'm a, go ahead i was gonna say i read that this was a spec script written by two fans of the series yep. and i feel like that was a thing i've read about where you know they had their writer's room and they would but they would accept you know people outside of just their writer's room to write scripts and come up with ideas, which is pretty cool, which really yeah. makes sense. And that's really kind of the only way they probably could come up with all these ideas. So it literally again. is fan I, fiction. Yeah, it's fan on, on fiction. Top of that, they they yeah. turned that into so, it. So to add to that, it's it's Valerie and Vivian Mayhew, their sisters, and they actually go on to work on Charmed. Yep. Oh, wow. So they obviously liked witchcraft. They, that's their thing. Things. They were trying yeah. to, you know, it's almost too little too late at the end when you realize that the Wiccan is sort of protecting, you know, is, is the protective force, you know. Um, and then it, I, you see some of that pop up in Harry Potter later on, but uh, a, a plot twist like that. But in here, yeah. you know, I'm going to, I'm, I kind of like the fact that I'm on at odds with everybody this episode. I didn't like this one at all. Well, oh, okay. Let's go on. Yeah, I don't, I don't care. It was um, it was gory and gross, which was fun. I liked the gory and the gross, but I didn't like and like if it hadn't been gory and gross, <laughs> and I was I don't know if I was giggling. I was probably straight out like laughing, chortling, chortling even during the. But I guess I did enjoy myself. So, but I just as an episode, I was like, come on, this is like this is subpar. That was my feeling. Like the, <laughs> the, the writing and everything, it was just like this is like it's like what you what you initially said. Um, Dave, like apart from liking or not liking it, that you know, it when people think this is what the X Files probably is, like this is what this whole thing is. Well, but it doesn't go as far as like a Morgan script where it's satirizing yeah. it. Like it doesn't feel intentional, like or aware. Let me say that it doesn't feel. No, I almost, I almost don't think it is. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's camp, as I guess it's like the well, camp yes, it it's the goes with the fan fiction movie. Yeah, it goes with the fan it fiction does, part of it, it where it is like instead of writing. For what the show is, it's like people writing for what they want it to be, what they think it is when they're watching it. it that never works. It never works no. as well as when, you know, it, it, fans, and of course we're fans, I don't want to bash this too bad, but <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're not the ones that should be writing this show. The writer should, or the creator should. So I think you do get some of that where it does come off as like fake X-Files in a way. The, and I think yeah. the problem is, Karen, you've mentioned a couple times already, like that you liked how in these episodes, some of these episodes, Home and others, you would get those moments, those sincere moments between Mulder and Scully. And we talked about a couple episodes last season too, where what what really bothers me, aside from the plotting of something like this, is there's a lack of there's moments where Mulder and Scully don't seem to be themselves, like the the people they're becoming. They just seem like boilerplate 
characters or they do things that are out of character. And I, to me, stuff like that, yeah, they've just been sort of shoehorned into it. You know, I've, uh, uh, Victor knows this. The funny thing is when we review movies, I'll be like, you know what? Could have been an X-Files episode. <laughs> and that's kind of what this is. They had an idea that it could have been an X-Files. So, you know, I, I thought the gore was fine, but I was checking my phone during this one. <laughs> I thought the gore was too much. This was like that fat sucker guy episode um, <laughs> from yeah. season three. Yeah. I <laughs> yes. haven't wanted to gag watching him since that one. And I did think it was funny. They used the broom at her house as probable cause. Yeah. Oh, there's a broom. Up oh, there's a pentagram. That's probable cause. <laughs> oh. All right. We did the nose. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they did. Fox did get angry letters from Wicked saying, "This is not what we are." <laughs> yeah, my my wife identifies as pagan, and she, uh, oh. I mean, she liked the episode, but she, yeah. she's angry that she has still never seen a proper depiction of her religion on film or television. Hmm. Charmed doesn't count either. Yeah, it's certainly not in the '90s. Sadly, <laughs> they weren't. They weren't uh, even when they tried. Sometimes when they tried, it was worse. Um, so yeah, uh, any any other comments about Sanguinarium? I will say that I think uh, was it uh, um, Jillian Anderson mentioned it was like one of the most revolting scripts she ever worked on. <laughs> <laughs> it is really gross. Yeah, the most revolting script I ever shot. <laughs> and she couldn't watch some of the scenes after they were filmed. So yeah, it's actually it it goes quite far for a television show in the '90s. Like Home is disturbing, but this is grosser. Yeah, but it it's kind of like what Victor said. It's almost like humorous fun, gross. I mean, not fun for the people that are getting you know eviscerated, but yeah. Uh, whoever one of you said whoever one of you said camp, that's that's the right yeah, word. I wish I'd have uh, thought of that. Yeah, I think I said maybe it may, maybe it makes me like it a little bit. But listen, like you said, listening to you guys talk about it makes me think I should maybe rewatch it but in a different <laughs> mindset, but. Um, how about musings of a cigarette smoking man? Well, um, musings of a cigarette smoking man. Um, yeah, I, a really, really cool mythology episode. One of my, one of my favorites. Uh, and, um, it really, it, it is connected to, um, and it also reminded me of this, uh, graphic novel that I read in the late eighties, I think called, uh, the unauthorized biography of Lex Luthor. Yeah. Um, and um, I don't know if there are any comic book fans uh, listening to this, but the one super cool thing about that, um, that graphic novel is uh, one of Lex Luthor's henchmen figures out who Superman is <laughs> and presents it to Lex. And she's like, it's, he's Clark Kent. Like, you know, there's, there's no way around it. And Lex just like pauses for a second and he's like, no, <laughs> there's no way because somebody with Superman's powers would never, you know, live part of his life as somebody like Clark Kent because Luthor's, uh, you know, ego is so huge that he can't understand someone who, <laughs> who wouldn't be much like that. Uh, but anyway, um, this this episode of the X-Files, uh, it's heavy on the lone gunman, and it sort of flashes back to a bunch of um, things that the cigarette smoking man has done conspiracy-wise to sort of change or alter the course of history over the years. And um, 
you know, I, I think in I, I read that in reality, it's partially based on an actual CIA agent who wanted to be a novelist. Um, that's one of the things that they they reveal about the cigarette smoking man is that, you know, all his fanciful ideas about uh, conspiracy are based in fiction that he wanted to write, but he wasn't good enough. So he was just rejected from everywhere. And then eventually he just sort of gave up and started lending his his powers to uh, this shady arm of the government. Um, but uh, yeah, the the plots are a little unbelievable, but um, and, and it sort of goes through history that he's connected to Trotsky and um, you know, uh, the JFK assassination and a, and a bunch of stuff. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I really wanted to re-watch, re-re-watch this before the podcast, but I didn't have time. Um, is he referred to as Mr. Mulder at one point in this episode? Does anybody know? Because I thought I heard that. I, I didn't hear that he was referred sure. to as Mulder, but he seems to be carrying a picture of Mrs. Mulder and a young fox. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was weird. Which, which Karen said something earlier, which I, I thought... This is there a thread this season? Like, maybe maybe he is in love with. Um, well, I, I forget Mulder's mom's name. Didn't in the final season that just released one and like he was like, "I am your dad," but then he wasn't or something. I feel like Chris Carr's been playing around with that for a while. And he never could decide if he wanted to be his dad or not, which probably was not the best way to make a show. Yeah, well, I I could swear that somebody calls him Mulder in this episode, and I just wasn't you know i i didn't i didn't note it or something like that but it it stuck in my mind <laughs> well it does the thing that a lot of prequels do and like you get you know all of his origin so he when he's a young soldier he's bunked right next to Mulder, so they've known each other their whole lives oh uh, yeah that could be it and you, you yeah. see the origin of his smoking yeah yep yeah but uh overall i i thought it was uh really really cool like i i really like the the little stories it's a sort of an anthology episode with uh, like five or six mini stories contained within the thing and and it shows him with his cronies and he like hands out the same colored ties to everybody <laughs> oh, that is wonderful <laughs> yeah. how he doesn't really know how to be a human that is yes yeah. so he has no real friends it's yeah he's going through the motions yeah, and he, he obviously, w- whatever he's doing for a living has completely zapped his soul out of his, you know, he can't he can't think creatively. He's got nothing. Yeah, he's like such he's a... He's just sort of going through the motions. And, and I, did, I did notice that this year, the actor is still alive, and the Buffalo Bills, again, didn't win the Super Bowl. <laughs> That's right, the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, um, yeah. There, there's a bunch of sort of one-off lines that are very prescient to like what actually happened in reality. <laughs> and one of the things is, you know, he's fixing the fixing some important sports games, including the Buffalo Bills. Well, um, I think it's funny. Yeah, I like anyway. how Victor, you make a good point about how it has a lot of little good like sequences within the episode. And I feel like this became a thing the X Files started to do, where every season they would have one of these episodes that was kind of like a a flashback episode, which was kind of humorous, kind of, you know, tongue in cheek, sometimes black and white. And I always loved a lot of those episodes. Remember that episode, which is coming up, I'm sure in the season's head where Mulder like plays baseball with an alien. Oh yeah. Yeah. Who knows what that was like? (laughs) What? Dick directed that episode. He did. He did. I remember that. And so 
this became kind of a thing the X-Files did, which I always really liked, and I think you're right. This episode is great. Like, it's just kind of, you know, humorous in that X-Files way, which I always like. It's like the latest episode of the season, which is kind of sad. It is, because it's really three small episodes. You don't even get a full story. And then, and then, really, I don't know about you guys, but, so, okay, he's a writer. Is anything that uh, Frohickey is saying true? Yeah. Like, is this all just more leaked fiction? Yeah, that's what's cool, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. And it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. I mean, it's it's really it's a fun episode to watch, but ultimately I don't think any of it matters because no. we knew that the cigarette yeah. smoking man was involved in stuff like this. And right, right. Uh, you know, now it's just like sort of hinting even further at the stuff it is. It's, it's kind of like <laughs> almost like, like it's like I think it's what you said, like the people that wrote this, I think, are have, are definitely fans of graphic novels, and particularly fans of that of that kind of graphic novel where you take an established character like a Batman or a Superman, and you step back and you do a speculative fiction on it, right? Like that's the coolest thing about this episode is the idea that he's the failed writer that just takes his, you know, that that a failed like sci-fi writer becomes the actual, you know demented mastermind you know he can't he can't write this as fiction so he's going to make it you know manifest in the world and that is kind of cool that's a really neat idea and then it's a neat idea to take that idea and look around and say okay how about this cigarette smoking man guy in a way it gives him it doesn't give him humanity but it gives him a fun element of depth that makes his character a little more interesting than he previously was it's like one of my favorite uh, episodes of the season honestly oh yeah yeah, and a cigarette smoking man is never more likable than in this episode. Yes. I think never. And I'm glad never. they didn't they didn't use it to try to sympathize him. No, I mean, no. you can if you want, but it yeah, it, it just keeps him as a, a very strong, stoic, right. but evil person. I've been talking a lot yeah. about the difference between likable and engaging. People are like, well, I didn't like the character. No, but if they're engaging, we don't care, and that's what he, he is here. He's engaging. Yes. And I think this um, James Wong was nominated for an Emmy. I think this was their first directing yeah. Emmy nomination. Ooh. Good job. Okay. So, and then, and it is always fun to see the lone gunman who who get their own sort of semi flashback episode. I think uh, in season five <laughs> at, a, at a convention oh, yeah. in Baltimore, no less. Uh, <laughs> Oh, that's right. Yeah. I remember not liking this one when it came out because Mulder and Scully weren't in it. But then rewatching it now, it's really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think everyone has a particularly at this point in time when so much is happening with Mulder and Scully. You're like, where did they go? Um, mm-hmm. At least they weren't just shoehorned into the episode like <laughs> Sanguinary. <laughs> um, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, so after mm-hmm. musings of a cigarette smoking man, then I believe that we are in a two parter, right? Tunguska and yeah. Tunguska and uh, Termo. So, did someone have this episode? Yeah, so I, had, so. I actually had both of these episodes, uh-huh. Tunguska and Terma. And you know, now I'm starting to even regret picking them because, to be honest with you, I'm not a huge fan of either one. And <laughs> you're just trying to get out of the episode quick, like, okay, right? Uh, I don't like it. Let's move on. Well, I do kind of have something to say about both. And I think it goes to kind of the point I was trying to make earlier. So first to Tunguska, let's just kind of briefly talk about it. So uh, the basic plot is that Fox Mulder travels to Russia to 
investigate the source of black oil contamination. It was kind of interesting rewatching it now with, you know, Russia always in the headlines. So that's something interesting. And Dana and uh, Walter Skinner are summoned to attend a United States Senate hearing on Mulder's whereabouts. And it's a two-parter, of course, about term. I think the, the initial idea for the episode was about reports of evidence of extraterrestrial life being found on an Allen Hills 84001 meteorite um, from Mars, basically. So that was like a big thing in the 90s. And I vaguely remember it. I don't know if you all remember that, where they thought they basically found like alien life on this meteorite from Mars. I think yeah. I'm not making that up, right, Victor? Is that was, right? No. Okay. Yeah. yeah there, there was a thing. Like yeah. Microscopic that, fossils of the bacteria. It was the meteorite was from like 1984, but in 96 is when they quote unquote discovered it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. Okay. So this episode is kind of like taken from that. And of course, then you got the black oil that comes into play. You have, uh, Mulder traveling to Russia to investigate, seeing what's going on. Of course, he gets captured and thrown into a gulag, which is pretty great, actually, because you find out that Russia's doing some things with the black oil. You have Scully and Skinner going to the subcommittee. And, of course, this continues the trend of Scully having to, you know, defend Mulder and, you know, try not to get Mulder fired or whatever is happening while Mulder is off on who knows what type of mission um, usually outside the country. This time she's literally in front of Congress trying to do that. And it ends with Mulder uh, basically tied up with like chicken wire shirtless, <laughs> which is so strange. So it's and really the, Mulder getting, you know, tied up and abducted and not. Uh, well, not honestly, it's probably something that Mulder was really into. You know, he is very kinky. And so he probably <laughs> he did like he's like I've been waiting for this for a long time, but honestly that image is actually really great. But my <laughs> issue with tighter. <laughs> I had to go to Russia all the way to to do this. <laughs> but ultimately, I think my issue with this episode and Terma that's coming up is it seems like they kind of get lost in the mythology and they don't really know what they're doing. It's like they start playing the hits. Like every mythology episode starts feeling the same, in my opinion. It's like, okay, you got this alien artifact or a alien conspiracy or something. Moore has to go and try to find it, figure out what it is. Story has to stay behind and like cover up for Mulder with the authorities or with her boss, whoever. Moore gets in trouble. He barely gets out of it, and that's the episode. And they almost can figure something out, and then there's always some hope in the future. And, of course, Terminal, we haven't gotten to that yet, but every mythology is starting to feel the same to me. Um, so I don't know what your all's thoughts was on the episode, but that's why I'm, I think that's why the mythology, mythology episodes became so criticized is they don't really have an ultimate game plan with this. Once again... They're asking more questions than answering anything, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I thought there was some silly stuff in this episode, but there's also some really cool stuff, uh, especially lines that Skinner yeah. says. Like, I think it, it really it was a good platform for Nick Pelleggi to show that he's a great actor. Um, but yeah, uh, I think, I think it's, it's I, I guess it's an important, um, mythology episode because Mulder gets, uh, oiled, um, 
and uh, you know goes to goes to Tunguska and all that, which is I don't think FBI agents do that, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's it was pretty intense, and it was one of those episodes where you look at your friends afterwards and goes, "Wow, did they really do that? Like, wow, are they going to get out of this?" Yeah, it's. <laughs> It's like the scope is so big, right? It's those globe-trotting things where it is almost like a James Bond. And there, and I, you know what? I think here's my theory about these two episodes. I agree with you, Tommy. Like, I'm at the same point where I'm getting kind of fed up where it's supposed to be a mythology episode, but it's really just like a big summer blockbuster that features the mythology at the fringes of the story, right? Like, the, the mythology is just the MacGuffin that gets them to go to all these places and have the gulag scenes and the action scenes and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. But I feel like maybe what they're doing here is a test run for what they're going to have to do when they do the movie, right? Like the movie's going to have to be big, and it's going to have to play in a, on a sandbox that's, that's going to have to feature the mythology, but we're going to have to do it in a fun way. We're going to need big locations, and it feels like a try. Every season, they get a little bigger, right? You have the one where Mulder's hanging off the train, I think, in season two or three, and then, you know... Uh, they're on submarines and then it, so we're getting bigger and bigger and now the, the canvas is is vast and then the setup is okay well next summer we're gonna have to do this really big so let's keep building towards it and that's kind of what these two episodes feel like to me it's like a test run for the movie are they also maybe scared yeah, to point. to end it like it's the x-files i clearly with the episodes i pick i i i like the monster of the weeks but are they worried that if there's no the overarching uh, mythology story left that people will tune well, out? Well, I think what happened really was that, you know, a show had really never tried this before where they had this overarching, yeah. like, mythology to this degree. And so they were, like, kind of setting the rules as they went along where, like, nowadays shows are very serialized. But that's because you had something like The X-Files to do what it could do. Yeah. So I don't. I think they were still in the world of... 24 hour 24 episode seasons just make the show as long as it's a hit and so they were kind of stuck in no man's land they knew that they wanted this mythology but they also knew it had to keep going as long as the show is a hit so they were kind of in a no-win situation honestly and to be fair to them i feel like the stuff that happens in the, we're again we're looking at everything from that uh you know we have the ability to look back on it and see where it ultimately ended up to be fair to all of this, I think everything here, and I love I love seeing John Neville again too, the well manicured man, you know, who I always think of as Baron oh, yeah. Munchausen, but he's back here and and seeing him sort of like, you know, give uh, give the smoking man a talking to is always fun, but um, they, those reminders in these sorts of episodes that the smoking man is not as high on the totem pole all the time, you know, at this point in time, and I the thing is. Where this story is headed, I think when if, if it's going to culminate in this movie after season five and things like that, to me, and, and and maybe Carter had no intention of that, it felt like that was headed towards a very, uh, at least at this point, hey, we could tie up everything. Technically, we could head it into this. And if you keep following where these plot threads are weaving, I think there comes a juncture not so far into the future where there would have been an opportunity to wrap this up if you didn't dig four more plot holes around the, you know, yeah. around the perimeter of this story. But, but you know, Chris Carter, he loves to keep the X Files going. But you know, Chris Carter, he just loves to keep the X Files going. Like you'll, that's his baby, you know. So, you know, like I said, I think it's it's just the it's just when it was created. The X Files is you know it's a creature of the time it was made. 
What did you think of the uh, of the follow up episode, the Terma episode? So, that wrapped us yeah, up? Terma. I, I honestly kind of look at these just kind of the same way, honestly. So everything I, think, I said yeah, with with Tunguska kind of fits. The plot is basically, you know, Mulder is in the Gulag, and he realizes basically that. Russia is doing experiments on people to basically figure out what's going on in the black oil and try to protect against it from an alien invasion. Um, and so you got that. You've got a great action set piece where Mulder tries to escape. Kind of your point, Nathan, they do try to... I do feel like X-Files is trying to go bigger and bigger within the confines of the television show, and that's a great sequence unto itself. We haven't mentioned that Krychek is around. He's always a great foil for, for Mulder. They, they really have a chemistry, them two together, I've always felt like. And yeah. um, it's just a really cool... You're not cool, sick of him yet. <laughs> you're not, yeah, exactly. So I think that's really great. I love all that stuff with, with Mulder and Russia. And then you've got... But once again, these mythology episodes straddle Scully with this awful B-plot of she's just, you know, trying to... She's at the subcommittee. She's giving these speeches, which are almost cringeworthy, you know, the, it's just not very good. I don't think it holds up very well. And then Mulder comes busting in. It's just all very melodramatic. Uh, it, it just doesn't work, I don't think. And once again, it's like, what? where are they going with this? I don't think they knew, which ultimately hurts this episode. You know what it feels like to me is, remember when this was on, they always had to have Sweeps Week or Sweeps Month. Yes. <laughs> and when they had, yeah, they had Sweeps Week or Month. The X-Files always brought out their mythology episodes. And these were the big two-parter episodes. And it was like Fox Fox Channel was like, all right, Chris Carter, we need the mythology episodes. And it's like they didn't really have an idea, so they just put all the plots of all the other mythology episodes into this one. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I do remember Sweeps. Uh, and, um, yeah, I thought... Terma was slightly less good than the one before it. <laughs> Getting worse, right? <laughs> yeah, just two things I wanted to mention about it. One, um, instead of uh, you know the usual subtitle that they put at the end of the main titles, they put in a, an Italian uh, saying "e uh, pur se muove," which is I looked it up, and it's apparently what Galileo said in the Renaissance times when he was forced to recant. Uh, and it translates into, and yet it still moves, which is uh, a a comment about the the earth. I think I think the deal was the the church was like, no, you know, the the, the universe revolves around the earth because man is at the center of things. And uh, and Galileo said under his breath, and yet it still moves. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'm not sure what that has to do with the episode, but it's kind of cool. It's more interesting than um, a lot of things that happened in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. And the other thing was, I just wanted to point out that uh, a lot of uh, Mulder's escape from the Gulag uh, Gulag reminds me of a, a movie from France in 1956, which is an awesome movie. I highly recommend it called A Man Escaped. And it the whole thing is a prison break. It's edge of the seat. Uh, and it's a. I just can't recommend it highly that. enough oh, cool. right now. Yeah, it's it's just about a guy that wants to escape from prison. So, um, and Victor, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, I gotta watch that now. And Victor, it always it always I always kind of laugh when the X Files goes to overseas, yeah. and still their locations are always very Vancouver like. I don't know, just something, something <laughs> about that. Yeah, 
Russia's not so bad. It's just like Canada. <laughs> those forests, I, it always cracks me up. It's like they're always in the exact same forest areas. It's just funny. The, the, the next one is, I think, in New Mexico, and everybody has, uh, you know, you can see everybody's breath when they're breathing. It's so cold in Mexico. <laughs> right? I remember that from the episode, the the one about the, the, the evil cats. <laughs> the the, 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 the mummy cats or bichos. whatever. Yeah, yeah, the the the, 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 the Texas bichos. <laughs> the bichos. My kids want to. The ones that my kids want to name our cats cat. after. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the next episode is Paper Hearts. I believe that was your episode, right, Dave? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I really like this one. I, I think a lot of what I like about it is uh, Tom Noonan as the guest star. Uh, he plays John Lee Roche, another three-name serial killer. Because <laughs> um, Mulder is uh, super frustrating in this episode. He's almost, oh my god, I don't bang my head against the wall with the decisions he makes. But this is a really, a really fun episode. And it, it's, I don't know, it's some there are, there are some problems with it. So let me get to the IMDb description here. Uh, oh, wow, it's uh, very tiny. An incarcerated serial killer claims Mulder's sister was one of his many victims. Um, so it opens up Mulder's having a dream, and I believe this is the one where he's following a laser pointer. I don't know if this was a new product in the 90s or what. <laughs> or they're trying to, trying to, I don't know, are they trying to reference that he's some sort of cat chasing nothing? Hmm. But uh, anyways, he has a dream which leads him to finding a body which then reopens a... Well, it's not a cold case. It's a case that he had helped solve. He caught a, a serial killer, I think, at the beginning of his FBI career. And it's Tom Noonan. So in kind of a very uh, Silence of the Lambsy um, way, they end up going back to talk to him to see if, if there's something they missed. And he is just the one of the best characters in, in the, in this episode, he's so calm and cool and he's, he's, he's messing with Mulder the whole time, but as they go to the jail to visit him. And I, I kind of thought, you know, you'd think he'd be in this cell locked up in solitary, but he's got the whole gym to himself. He's shooting hoops. He just casually turns to, to the, to the camera and he's like, Oh, Hey Mulder, what's up? I see you got a new partner. You know, he's just very calm about everything. Yeah. And then as they get going, um, it's pretty crazy. So I, I, I don't remember watching this one at the time, but if any of you guys do, let me know. Like, what's going on here? There is a possibility that this serial killer killed Mulder's sister, and Mulder has, has messed up his memories, and, and maybe she was never abducted. So I don't know if at the time people really bought that they were going to up upend the whole mythology and just end it here and change the direction of the show, or maybe not change the direction of the show, but, but you know, it would, it would significantly change Mulder if, if in fact his sister wasn't abducted by aliens and instead it was a serial killer, but they spend the whole episode. He's got Mulder convinced he has, um, he seems to know things about Mulder's childhood and, and where they, where uh, everything went down in Martha's vineyards and, it's uh, it's very well done. So they, I forget. I, he says something about Mulder's sister, and then they go to investigate. They they end up trying to investigate the the vehicle that 
the killer drove before he was arrested. And when, when they, uh, <laughs> it's hilarious because Scully's like, well, Mulder, don't you think that they would have searched the car by now? <laughs> it wasn't searched by me. And he does end up finding a collection of these, uh, they're not paper hearts, but that's what the episode is called. They're, the killer took a trophy from everybody that he killed. He cut a, he cut a heart shape out of all their pajamas and kept it. And he would keep it in, uh, in his camper. So that's the part that, that is, is hard to, to fit with. Like how, how can, how can this killer have abducted his sister and know all this stuff if, if it's not real? which is the part that I have, I have a hard time with. Like Mulder definitely had a dream that led him to the, to the victim that had not been found. That's true. That's X-Files stuff, but everything, everything with the killer, I mean, he's definitely messing with Mulder. I don't believe that he actually killed Samantha, but he seems to know like, like they they have a psychic connection, which, which has never played out in the episode either. It's very, very odd, but, um, what Mulder does, he goes to great lengths to try. Obviously, we all know he's obsessed with his sister. He ends up taking the killer out of prison, even though Scully said, you know, that's a terrible idea. He falls asleep again. The killer gets away. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. He would have been fired also. This episode, like, you can't, you can't keep it in continuity because there is no way he would have a job after this. He takes a child molesting serial killer out, loses him, the guy abducts another girl and then there's a super tense showdown in like a, some sort of school bus graveyard. It's, it's very, school it's bus a really graveyard. Like well, a good like a, children's it, book. Well, it reminded me of like an airplane graveyard, it but it's, it's just so all these weird. buses. I don't know where they would have found that or, or how they, I mean, obviously somewhere in Vancouver, they were storing that. It goes with his creepy personality as this like child predator, I guess. I don't know. Well, even even the production crew, I don't know where they found that or why the city would be keeping all those old buses there like that. <laughs> Just in case yeah, we ever need I mean, to resurrect them. <laughs> I yeah, guess. I know, but it, sorry, go in ahead. Palm, in Palmdale, California, they have a an airplane graveyard. I'm sure I've seen that in films before. Yeah, somebody may have just gotten the idea from that and said, oh, wouldn't it be nice and creepy if we, you know, they put all the decommissioned school buses yeah. in one area and just kept them there? In case we need parts. It's a great yeah. set piece. I mean, it's a great, like atmosphere to it it is it's and it's a it's a really good ending i just it's just so frustrating how far Mulder will go to he, find yeah. out what happened to his sister he is crazy in this episode but it's so and, and he, he even at the very beginning he even tells so he, he he he's messing with Mulder. he says hey if you sink this basket from there right there i'll tell you what you want to know well Mulder sinks the basket and he says what you trust the child molester He's just, oh, yeah, I think this, so episode good in this episode is in the vein of like X Files always have these themes, I feel like, with their episodes where like they kind of not do the same thing over and over again, but similar themes. And this is in the Mulder goes crazy trying to find his sister vein of episodes, yeah. Which, yeah, and again, Scully, super supportive the whole yeah. time, he's acting like a moron <laughs> and she's still there for him, she's always there for him, even though he's, yeah, yeah exactly. And this is. It's still a really well done episode. I think Vince Gilligan wrote it, and of course, one of the best writers in television history from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And the ending always gets me because 
you know, Mulder just straight out kills the dude. It's like not many episodes or not many shows would do that. And it's it's pretty yeah. like not hard to watch, but it's like this is not an easy episode to watch, I don't think. But it's really well done. I really I've always really liked it a lot. So I have a theory, Dave, to what your 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 point's exactly right, and I agree, it is frustrating. But given what you just said, Tommy, what happens at the end, I, I've always wondered if what they're trying to get across there, or at least put in our heads, is the idea that he takes him out with no intention of bringing him back. You know, he does lose him. That part is true. Uh, but I got the impression that he he anticipated what he would find. Like, as much as he wants to believe, I don't know if he wants to believe she was abducted by aliens, but he wants to believe that there's some sort of conclusion that maybe won't end horribly for her, right? And I think here's there's a there's a large part of him that thinks that he is going to what he's going to find is going to back up what this guy says, and that he's going to do exactly what he ends up doing. You know, I don't know that he ever I, has I don't to bring know. him back. I don't know that that uh, John Lee Roche knew that though. Like oh, he, I don't think, that, yeah. that's why that, that last scene is powerful because yeah. he says, "Well, if you 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 can't shoot me. If you shoot me, you'll never know." No, and I don't. He shoots think, him yeah. anyways. Yeah. I don't think he knew that, but I think I wonder if that's not a Mulder's mind that when you know that that you're maybe even operating off of autopilot. That we talk about him taking him out like that. Like who knows what he thought was going to happen? But it's almost like he doesn't. He's not anticipating a future. Maybe after this, he's just he's operating so, on the. I'm taking you out, and I probably don't intend to bring you back. And what did you guys think of, like, is, so Scully puts it to him that, maybe you know, he had all this information in his head and he'd been mulling it over and dreaming about it for years and that's how he solved it. But what do you, I mean, what what do you guys think was going on? I, I, I Because it's the X-Files, I want to think that there's a supernatural connection. Yeah, uh, I think Mulder says at some point, I wrote this down, uh, a dream is an answer to a question we haven't learned how to ask. And I think that's what drives that you so so brilliantly, Dave, uh, mentioned like he's chasing a pointer at the beginning. But what's so cool, I think, about this narrative is we don't know as the audience if like Mulder is being a cat with regard to all the other episodes we saw before where he was definitely convinced that his sister was kidnapped by aliens or he's chasing the pointer now, um, you know, just because the killer's in front of him and it's something. And he thinks that there's just something linked to this killer that will lead to his sister, not necessarily that the killer is responsible for killing her, but something in there. And he follows that intuition to its end. And, and I think that's what Scully's referring to by, you know, uh, you know, these are, are things that you've had in your mind for a long time. I, I, I personally believe that's what intuition is. It's, it's just like your unconscious makes these split second connections with things that are really important to you in the past. And that makes something seemingly that's seemingly unrelated to the problem you're working on seem significant and you put them together and uh, get going. I think you're right on with that, Victor, because I think what this does in doing that, like that element of, okay, he's been chasing these other things for so long, and then this pops in front of him, and he immediately goes after it, too. And if you look at where season four goes and and the storyline and how this culminates at the end of this season, I think this episode is supposed to underscore that idea that Mulder's going to, in order to find the answer, he's going to chase after everything and not always put it to the highest sniff test, right? That he's always going to be... They, they can always manipulate him in this direction, the search for the truth, right. which is really the search for Samantha. It makes us 
feel more uh, concerned for him as he go, and, and it makes us buy some of these sort of plot developments that happen towards the end of the season where we we, we see him go in some or, or believe that he's going in these certain directions. And I think that this, an episode like this, is them setting it up, getting the raid to say, yeah, okay, Mulder's going to go point. anywhere and he's going to follow any trail. And that laser pointer <laughs> is going to run. Mulder <laughs> will truly believe anything. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, is he- Five dots? That's a pentagram. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Which exactly. is part of the one of the reasons we love him, but it is kind of funny <laughs> to take a step back and kind of like. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's great. It makes more sense that he would be working that out in his dreams or his subconscious, yeah. but it still doesn't explain like how the killer knows all that stuff about his sister. Like that wouldn't be on the even, news. Even the, so... the vacuum. He knows the vacuum. Yeah. That he, that like, just, sold. I always was thought that a lucky with this episode that he would know. Yeah, I always <laughs> thought that this was playing around with like the serial killer. I think Nathan, that's what I was gonna say, is like it was like the trend in, in the 90s of the serial killer, like knowing everything and being like super smart, always ahead of their target. And I felt like what Tom Noonan's character was, was kind of like that and knowing what Motor's weaknesses were and just playing him the whole time and just messing with him. And you kind of see I, I, that. I definitely think he's messing Yeah, and you see that at the end where Motor's like, he's like, we bought this house afterwards. Like everything you're telling me is a lie. And Tom's like, but that, but that he has that, they, he, but he says it very calmly too. It's just, just geography. I, I right. got the wrong house. So what? It was 30 years I knew ago. Everything I don't else. remember. Yeah. I, but even that, I think I've always got that as that's just another of him playing with motor again. He, he just keeps doing it because motor will always. Play. So I've yeah. always thought that that's what the episode was about. That, it was him messing with Mulder, yeah. and the X Files almost messing with the audience. Of you all also will believe anything until we show you. <laughs> oh wait a minute! I like that. And the casting <laughs> of Tom Noonan. They're like, yeah. well, we couldn't get Brian Cox, who was Lecter, so we'll get Dollar High. Yeah. <laughs> right. We got the next craziest guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Tom is a great. I mean, he played a serial killer in Manhunter, the Michael Mann movie. I, yeah. So yeah, and and I mean, I mean it, it even. Uh, maybe it's just me, but it, it feels like it's you know touching or just slightly homaging uh, Silence of the Lambs. I think so sure. too. Yeah, we, we're taking the killer out. We're going on a trip, and so and I think it, it's a combination of things. Like uh, he's enticing him that oh, we can put this psychological problem you have to rest. Right, that's what he's he's always sort of mm-hmm. implying to Clarice, and that's what you know even in the title. Uh, the thing, and then Tom Noonan makes it. I think he's the thing that makes it work, though. But to them, oh, he's fantastic. Amazing. Yeah, the point that you're asking, David, about the, is the supernatural involved at all? I think that when these tend, when that tends to be the case in an episode, they often put some hint in it. So go all the way back to Beyond the Sea, right? That had a, you know Brad Dourif playing a killer, and that that tells Scully something she wants to hear about something yes, beyond the afterlife. Right. But in that episode, at the, at the very end, whether it's his own delusions or I mean, we see things there that can't be explained but in that episode at the end when he goes to walk to the the gas chamber you see the ghosts come out or you see the spirits come out i, I believe right like they come out right. uh, around him and mm-hmm. there so there's a visual there's an in that episode there and in a lot of the episodes like this there's something visual or informational that that really does suggest hey he was what he said he was and this episode except for that question paper heart at the end he, there's nothing that ever tilts too much towards, hey, he was exactly what he said he was. 
Right. That's kind of what I don't, I agree with you, Nate. It's like the Exiles will let you know. They'll they'll kind of cue you in. I feel like they kind of tip their hand at the end of this is not the supernatural. This is Mulder wanting to believe anything and everything, and sometimes the audience too. And there's them saying sometimes it's not that. Yeah. I like that. Okay, so. And I, I really like that episode. It is a good one. And it's always fun to see Tom Noonan, who who can be so quiet and, you know, reserved. And in the moments of he's being quite reserved, he's just creepy as hell. Yeah, like House <laughs> of the Devil. House of the Devil's a great example. Oh, yes. yes of that. So then we move on to episode 11. And this is uh, one of your episodes, Karen. It is El Mundo Gira, um, written by Chris Carter and John Chabon, who I'm surprised didn't get fired after the Teso de los Bichos uh, episode. <laughs> um, and it was directed by Tucker Gates. It aired uh, January 12th, 97. And it aired the same date as the X-Files Simpsons episode yes! um, that yeah. probably would have been on right before oh, this. And um, first of all, this is another one I don't think they would make today. I, I think there's a lot of kind of stereotyping and then the border stuff. I, jo- I don't think it would happen. Um, but from IMDb, a desperate illegal immigrant who can't speak any English becomes patient zero for a mysterious illness and goes on the run from the INS, the FBI, and his own brother who blames him for the death of his girlfriend. So I picked this one not because I love it, but because I this was my I was so disappointed in this episode <laughs> when it aired because I thought it was going to be about the chupacabra and I think that was like a a new kind of thing like I don't remember hearing about it too much more before this episode aired but um it was like this thing in the southwest and south america the goat sucker i thought it was going to be about that but uh the x-files likes to take those myths and twist them a little they did that with the jersey devil and they did it with the werewolf one um but i think because i was so deeply annoyed that they went with it being like an enzyme or fungus or whatever it was that was uh, killing people that I never even noticed the soapy aspect of this episode. Like it just went completely over my head. The title basically means as the world turns (laughs) and Scully mentions they've gotten themselves into a Mexican soap opera. Um, There's a lot of really loud on purpose overacting like you see in a soap opera um and i oh. didn't catch any of that i'm only really realizing this. it now that you say that myself <laughs> uh, yeah me too it did not even occur to me and like i said i don't think i could get past the fact that this isn't really going to be about the chupacabra um but i like i said i I can't say if I liked it or didn't like it, but I know I hated it when it aired the first time. Um, I, I can't help think that I think it would have been better if they t- had made an episode about the actual flesh and blood chupacabra monster. Um, I did like Reuben Blades. I thought he was really good as Agent uh, Lozano in this. Um, 
And like I said, I just, I would like to hear what you guys thought of this one, aside from the fact that, like I said, I really don't think they would make this episode nowadays. Yeah. yeah I think I, you, 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 oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say, Karen, I, I think you put more insight into the story than I had when I saw it. My, my note was <laughs> at the, at the, in the deb- debriefing at the end of the episode, uh, Skinner goes, frankly, <laughs> I'm confused by this story. And <laughs> I just have same. When they were done, like we're, he might as well said, we're sorry. We gave the bitches guy a second chance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, exactly what you said. The first time I saw this super disappointed that the chupacabra was not featured in there because for whatever reason, my uh, siblings and I at the time were, I don't know, obsessed with it, but I don't think it was a new thing, but it was something that was just sort of coming into the zeitgeist, right? People were becoming aware of it. I was and, too. And the, it, like, it, it, like the cryptozoology was such a cool idea. And so we were imagining all these things that could be. And then for it to completely sideline it, at least in like the werewolf episode, they're still kind of werewolves, right? You know, and, right. and in, in the episode with uh, Big Blue, there's still some kind of creature out there. But this uh, and it, it, the the fungus stuff is pretty gross and gnarly looking. My daughter had picked up the book here that I just got was looking at, and she goes, Bleh. she turned to the, the photo <laughs> and that one. She closed it. She's like, I'll look at this later, Dad, after dinner. That's like, mm-hmm. um, but so that's gross and gnarly. But I agree with you, like that. Once you get there and you there's no chupacabra, it's like what gives. But I guess that's kind of like every time you hear someone say, "Hey, they've got a photo evidence of a chupacabra," and then nope, that's a mangy dog. That's basically this episode, right? Next one has got a chup. Nope, it's just fungus. <laughs> that was funny too, because what they really keep saying that the chupacabra is is like a dog or a coyote that has mange and so they lose all their hair Mm. and they look really weird however in this episode they're covered with all this extra hair from the fungus yeah yeah just give me some chupacabras Mm. jumping around and attacking yeah it could have been so good it's a it's yeah i i know exactly what you're saying it's interesting to like discuss but it is kind of a dud but just like uh, some others have mentioned early on, I hearing you talk about it and the and the the telenova aspect of it makes me kind of want to rewatch it a little. A little. <laughs> I was shocked. I was like, "Is this supposed to be funny?" Because they're like the when the the brothers in jail and he's talking about what happened. He's just like the overacting. There's a lot of overacting. And then all of the, like almost everybody is doing that, including agent Lozano at the end. So I'm like, Oh, this did, this went right over my head the first time. Yeah. And I never looked up the title. So I thought it might've meant disappointment. I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) It means something slightly different, but basically it means as the world turns. I see that Chris Carter mentioning that they noted that the like the soap opera like nature of it, so they they, they put that. Yeah, didn't didn't catch that the first time. Any uh, any other comments on this one? No, I think you you all hit it right on the head. It's like one of those episodes where you you think what you're getting is like that's what you really want, and then when they take a swerve, you're a, you're a little disappointed. It's not an awful episode. It's just kind of one of those average x-files episodes which yeah. is still better than most shows honestly do you think that guy comes back and writes anymore after this one 
after those two. Uh, I'm going to look and find out and never pick those episodes. <laughs> right. I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, well, no, he does because this is John Shaban, right? Who writes this? He does. He just starts to write more as I go along. In fact, oh yeah, he, writes, he does a lot of episodes. Yeah, he he writes the one later on that I actually picked called Elegy, and we'll talk about that one. Um, that's the oh, bowling okay. alley one. So, um, oh, so he'll redeem um, himself yeah. a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Um, <laughs> I, I think the the one thing I noted about his his episodes or his writing though is they do tend to be. They do tend to be a little bit messy. Like they just feel like they're not always fully thought out or like a really cool idea. But those nuances we had talked about in some of the other scripts where they take this idea and they explore all the boundaries of it. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that happens. Like that's one of the problems here. It's like he hasn't thought everything out. Like even to the extent we're going back and forth with this, we're putting all these things out and it's like it just seems like the basic level of narrative consistency sometimes isn't strong. <laughs> but um Anyway, let's go into the next episode, and that was the the most watched episode was Leonard Betts and uh, Victor. Is this your episode? Yeah, Leonard Betts. Um, yeah, I really loved this one. Um, I mean, first of all, yeah, it's uh, the guy that plays Leonard Betts is Emil from RoboCop, <laughs> yeah. that uh, crazy red haired dude that's like. All melty. Hey? Yeah, yeah. The guy that goes into the Toxic Avenger at the end. Like, uh, You're pretty smart, college boy. I think you can art outsmart a bullet. Uh. Um, but anyway, it's a really far out, cool idea. Um, the uh, the cold open is uh, he he's a paramedic, and there's an accident, and he, you know, Betts is beheaded in the in the accident. And um, enter Scully, and uh, you know she's doing a um, uh, a uh, an autopsy, <laughs> and um, uh, the the for, there are a lot of weird things with the body. Uh, I mean, first of all, the the head appears first appears to be um, alive on its own, uh, and um, the body. Uh, we see the body get up and move and uh, rampage out of the, uh, out of the morgue. <laughs> and this is just the beginning. Like this is just the beginning. Um, the, the, when, when uh, Scully has the head, uh, she takes a cross section of the head and finds out that every cell in the head is cancerous, um, which is, that's sort of the tease of a huge theme that comes into this show that I, I've never seen in any other show. Um, about Scully contracting cancer and how they use that. I mean, this really unlikely storyline where it's like one of the main characters that you have been following all these years has a fatal disease. Um, and it's like, how, how are they going to write this? Like, how, how is this going to end? Um, but it, it, uh, it ends up um, a little bit later in the season, you know, in episodes we'll talk about uh, going into discussions of faith, science, healthcare, some pretty heavy stuff that I, I think uh, Carter was was just itching to talk about in the show. Um, but anyway, back to Leonard Betts. Uh, he, um, Betts, uh, apparently uh, has some sort of independent life um, in his cells because of this condition. He's, he's uh, it turns out that he's a mutant and um, on, on Mulder's urging, uh, a Karelian uh, photographer takes some photos of the head 
And in one of the coolest ideas I've ever seen in the series, um, the shoulders and torso come up in the Carillion aura uh, photograph. And, and they're like, what does that mean? Like, you know, is does, does that mean the head is like regrowing the body? And in fact, it's the other way around. The body that has escaped <laughs> is regrowing. He's like the head. Reptilicus. Um, yes, he's like Reptilicus, and and it leads to some really cool ideas. Like at some point, he's caught and he's handcuffed to a bumper, and he gets out of it by tearing off his own thumb, and then you see him regrowing it later. And then the big reveal is, uh, yeah, when whenever uh, Betts kills someone, he says sort of apologetically to them, "You have something I need," meaning the person he's about to victimize has cancer in them and he's feeding off of these cancerous cells. Uh, and of course, at some point Scully catches up with him and Betts says that chillingly to her. And you're just like, Whoa, did I hear that right? <laughs> and yes, you did. Um, but, um, the, the other cool detail I just wanted to mention was Scully wakes up uh, in the middle of the night in this episode at two Oh eight, which is the same time, uh, she was abducted in one of the previous episodes, uh, which I think is just a coincidental touch of the X-Files writers, but still very cool. And um, yeah, I, I really, I love the episode. It, it moves super fast. It's uh, very sensational and, and uh, you know, ridiculous in some ways, but I, I totally bought into it. And, um, you know, yeah, Paul, Paul McCrane's great in it. <laughs> What'd you guys think? I thought this one worked really well. Same, it's very, it's very funny. It's got a lot of action, and and you don't really know what's going on for the, for the first act at least. Um, I'm still not sure how he, he how he, like when he fakes his own death by by regrowing a whole extra body. That's crazy. <laughs> right. Love it. It's yeah. it's the stuff of bad B movies, but they make it work because of how much everything is is like working around it. Right, like all the pieces are. <laughs> Action. That's the thing with the X Files. When they're on point, they could take the most ridiculous thing and make you invested in it. And then if they're not, they can take a you know a boilerplate idea like the fungus stuff, and you're like, really? <laughs> so it's it's another episode too where um, Scully is reasonably trying to use science and deduction yeah. to figure out what's going on, and Mulder's like, Nah, this guy's like a lizard. He just regrows himself. <laughs> But the, yeah. but like Victor said, the way he reveals it is really cool. Like it's that's what's interesting. It's it's not just sort of like some random. He has a random idea, but then the way he goes about backing it up is is interesting. And Scully, an interesting thing they do here, I think, and it's always been the tension right in in the series as it, Scully sort of internal tensions beyond just the science versus faith. There's been the you know work versus my own personal life, right? Like. Her personal life is always sort of put on hold, even from the beginning. You know, I think in season one, at one point, she starts to date somebody, and it's just like, no, she's got to go help Mulder escape from a deer woman or something, right? You know, uh, or <laughs> the the cave woman in the woods or what? You know, there's uh, her personal life and and her work life are so directly merged, as we see in this entire like season. That when remember that when she learned that she even had the 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 chip in her neck, it was because they had suddenly put metal detectors in the office building, right? And she learned about that yeah. incidentally because something changed at work. And here she is on this case, and that's how she learns about this cancer. Yeah. I liked in the beginning um, a way to keep it from 
being just really bad CGI, the way they <laughs> just showed him walking out on all those reflective surfaces. I liked that because the CGI was kind of bad later <laughs> in the show when they showed stuff. So I loved in the beginning when he left the morgue. I thought that looked cool. Yeah. Mm, there was yeah. some from beyond kind of stuff going on there. Like some Stuart Gordon a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, I was thinking of reanimator when the body yeah. walks out. Oh totally. yeah. And yeah. it's a really interesting episode to play after the Super Bowl Cause it, you know, this was, <laughs> yeah. they knew this would be the most watched X-Files episode ever. And so, so I just wanted to mention, speaking of ratings, so what is it? It was like 12 million that watched this 29. episode? 29 million. 29 million. 29. Million. Yeah. 29. Okay. Which is like oh, today. Yeah, double. Not double, but like 10 million more than they oh, usually oh. averaged. Oh, yes, for this episode. Yeah. But I was going to say, compared to television, to, and I know that everything has been segmented. We, some people stream. I don't even have cable anymore. But like, I just just quickly looked up, you know, you, your shows like Legends of Tomorrow or Star Trek Discovery. They're getting like 900,000 people right. per episode watching. It's, it's not this even, is 12 times as many people watched this episode. And that's after the Super Bowl. Like it averaged, I think we were talking about like probably 19 million viewers an episode this year. Like mm -hmm. it's just a different world. Everybody watched the same stuff. That's why X-Files was such a phenomenon. Yeah, you really only had the, you know, the four. I mean, I grew up in, in Canada, so we had your four big networks and our two. But, you know, like, yeah, they're, they're, they showed different things. You got to watch it once a week. If you missed it, you're out of luck till summer reruns. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the last question I have on this, and they, they may have, like, completely spelled this out. I know it's kind of the implication, but I had been a little while since I'd watched this one compared to when we were doing the episode. Uh, I watched it again for this, but it, like I say, it's been, been probably about a month or so. Do they come out and say, I mean, essentially, so Leonard Betts, the reason he's able to do this and the reason he's eating the cancer cells and everything and the reason he can regrow them unlike, say, a normal person is he is a tumor, basically, right? Like, he's a sentient yeah. tumor. Basically, yeah. yeah. It, it, his, his mutation is uh, that he he's made up of cancer cells. Yeah, there's no person really there anymore. <laughs> right. Like, he, he's just a thinking collection of, of cells. Which is a very cool idea. That, that that harkens back. I feel like there was a an old like uh, Tales from the Crypt episode or something where a guy had cancer and he goes to a witch or something to gain immortality, but he just becomes a giant ball of cancer. You know, he he's not going to die, but it's just going to keep metastasizing forever. Yeah, as far as mutations go, it's not a great one. <laughs> no, not as cool as say flight or X ray. One of the worst, right? <laughs> right. Correct. Okay, so Dave, you have the next episode, Never Again. Yeah, Never Again, episode 13 of this year. Uh, very surprising guest actor, Jodie Foster, in this episode. And the uh, IMDb, man, these synopsises are kind of hit and miss. This one says, Mulder takes a vacation to visit Graceland while sending disaffected Scully to Philadelphia to look into Russians with ties to UFOs. She becomes attracted to a secretly unstable young divorcee whose tattoo is telling him to kill women. Um, I would have just taken all that Mulder stuff out of there because this is a Scully episode. It doesn't have anything to do with... Well, it does have something to... He does Mulder initiates. He does, and he's very funny and cute, and he sort of initiates what's going on here. Yeah. But it's, it's really, to me, 
this is a Scully episode. And I don't know we, when you guys chime in, you can tell me, I don't even think this is an X file, but I'll tell you why when I get there. So yeah, the reason, uh, I think when it starts, Scully is looking kind of bored and disaffected and Mulder's packing up the agency's basically forcing him to take his vacation. He hasn't had one in four years, so he's going on some sort of soul-searching journey, he tells Scully, uh, suggesting maybe she should do the same. But first, hey, finish up all my work and do all this. Um, oh, and, and while Scully's feeling, I don't know, she's she's kind of bored, not bored, maybe kind of not, not sure what she's doing in life, you know, um, because actually Mulder does say one of the reasons he doesn't want to go on vacation is that the X-Files, this is his life. And she says something interesting that, uh, well, it's becoming mine too. And then she asks why she doesn't have a desk and he kind of plays that off. And, and most of this episode, I I think is kind of, kind of sad. Scully's a little depressed in it. Um, anyways, she does eventually go to Philadelphia to follow up on some of the work that Mulder was doing. Um, she wasn't really even sure if, you know, this is probably another, crazy thread he's chasing. Uh, she does find out that the person she went to Philadelphia to get information on one of Mulder's informants. It turns out that informant is probably lying to Mulder to get money out of him because he's, he's like a, an extortionist for the Russian mob. Yeah. <laughs> long story short, sorry, long story short, she ends up, um, through following this Russian guy, she ends up at a tattoo parlor where she meets, um, let me just get the actor's name. Oh, it's uh, Edward Jerse or Jersey. Anyways, it's it's Rodney Rowland. I actually thought it was the actor who was a couple of seasons ago. He played the soldier who had no arms or legs, but it's just someone who looks a lot like him. Hmm. He has a tattoo that is that he thinks is talking to him. So this tattoo that he has is also voiced by Jodie Foster, and she is really good. I, I like as a voice actress, she's got a really unique voice anyways. I don't know. It's like a, like, it's not like a Charles Bronson accent, except that in the way that I don't know where it's from. <laughs> and and like, one of, like you can always, she has this weird way of ending words. Like one of her first lines is though. Also, sorry, basically Edward's problem is he got this tattoo after a bad divorce. And now the tattoo seems to be talking to him and egging him on to, uh, to really hate the women in his life. He seems to it's like a almost proto incel, but he's not, I mean, he, he has had sex before, so it's not <laughs> quite that, but, but like it, it keeps, you know, um, his boss is a woman and the tattoos making him think that she's against him. And he keeps hearing a woman talking. And at first he doesn't know, obviously doesn't know it's the tattoo. He thinks it's his coworkers who are all women. And he's really placed in this story as a guy who, um, he's sort of, uh, you know, put down on, uh, like, uh, he, he's, he's, he's really, really antagonistic against women through this episode, but I think it's all in his head. I like the, 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 the crux of, of what might be going on is that there's ergot or something from wheatgrass yeah. that is in the ink of the tattoos that is causing, uh, Rodney to hallucinate all these voices. But at the end of the episode, you find out that it's really not enough to have affected him. So it's, it's probably just, he's just 
you know, he's got a mental condition where he's, he's hearing this voice telling him to do things. He ends up, he does, he does kill at least one woman. He tries to kill Scully. And, and, and it's really sad because the whole time she just, it's like, she's had enough of the X-Files, you know, it's like, it wasn't her choice to be there. Mulder, uh, generally, you know, he, especially at the beginning of the episode, he comes off, he's like jokey and making quips and really not listening to her. He's not sympathetic to her at all. And she has been for four years. So she's almost kind of done with everything. And she just meets this guy. They, she wants him, she wants to be taken to a bar. Um, and it's odd that, uh, um, you know, if you were Karen, you're shipping for, uh, Mulder and Scully. Well, this episode, Scully is, you know, with another guy. It's, I, I can't even remember if she's ever been with another guy in an episode so far. No, I don't think so. Just yeah, that one I, date. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, years ago when whenever Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross came out. <laughs> if you want to add the dates together, I don't know. But um, Scully basically goes through this whole episode on her own. She, um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'll ruin the ending. It doesn't matter if I like it. It won't ruin our review of it if you don't know how it exactly ends, but Scully doesn't get killed. Um, and then at the very, the very end, this is, this is like one of my favorite scenes. It's the very last scene. How does Scully put it? Oh, Mulder looks at Scully and says, you went through all this just cause I wouldn't get you a desk. Oh, <laughs> and then she looks at him and says, not everything is about you, Mulder. He's and so the camera sick. pulls, he is, he's is. And, but the, and when the camera's pulling back, they're just in this dark basement alone <laughs> with no lives. Like, I, I don't know. It was just, uh, I, I thought it was tragic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I, I think it, it is. I mean, it is. I, I think that um, the, the real, the symbolic power of this episode uh, called never again is um, it's an existential crisis. Yes. Like it's Scully's existential crisis that usually like when humans have a, and like a midlife crisis where they look back on their lives and go, is this really what I'm doing with my life? Like, is this the best life I could be leading? I think she's having one of those moments. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think the, the divorce of the dude that she dates in this episode is kind of that guy's midlife crisis yes. that triggers his uh, psychosis. Um, so it's sort of a, a foray into that, um, that territory for both of the characters. And, um, I think it's perfect for Scully because one episode ago, she has, she's starting to suspect because of what Leonard Betts said that she might have a terminal disease. So she's, she's like, what am I doing with my life? Like no desk. I'm just helping this guy chase rainbows and, and flying saucers. Like, is that it? Like, is that all I'm going to get to do? Um, so it's pretty heavy if you look at it that way. Yeah, that's, that is, that's it exactly. Yeah. It's like a better, it's like there's this impetus that kind of sends her off on something almost in the same way. I think it's a better version of the one where Mulder went out and hooked up with vampires after Scully disappeared and he was dealing yeah. with all of that in a sense. Mm. An interesting element of this, which kind of makes sense when you look at the overall structure, that Quentin Tarantino was supposed to direct this episode. I read and, that. And he, yeah, but he was prevented from doing it because of like the like the writers guild or something like that, the directors guild of America. Uh, 
said, okay, you're not a union member. You didn't join. He did something on ER. And so he, uh, he wanted to do it, but it ultimately he didn't pan out. I, I can't imagine what it would have been like if he did direct this though. The tattoo would have cursed a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, until uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, I, I don't think any midlife crisis stuff has ever shown up in his work, um, yeah. but it really did in that movie. We would have seen a lot of Jillian <laughs> Anderson's feet, and it, you, I, that might be something that should happen. I'm not I'm right, cool with it, but whatever. Um, <laughs> anything else about Never Again? Is that tattoo that she gets, is that the millennium symbol? The Earth. Oh. yes, yeah. Okay, because in my head, when I saw that, I thought, "Oh, that's a big deal." Or so I, like, I, I for some reason, I thought, "Yeah, like, it has nothing to do with an episode ever again, right?" I don't think they ever show no, it again or talk but, about it again. No, I don't think so. Well, yeah, and and she was going to get it in real life. She's like, "I'll go ahead and get it," and they're like, "Okay, that's not practical <laughs> or uh, time conducive." And because yeah, you don't get to see them like that, like they don't, they don't just instantly heal. Yeah. No. Uh, and of course the, it, it being mm. called never again, it being exactly what Victor says, we're like, this is all I'm done with my life. My life is in circles, right? The snake eating its tail is going to keep happening, you know, uh, not this particular thing, but you know, uh, after a while, how many times do you, you know, you, men want to eat your brain or your cells or, you know, <laughs> gagged and in a trunk, you know, <laughs> Tied up, waiting for a lobotomy. That's exa- exactly, exactly. That's um, true. You know the ergot poisoning that they get here. They, I, I don't think that's a thing with tattoos, but that is what they sometimes think caused the Salem witch trials. Ooh. That they people were appearing bewitched, but there was an outbreak of um, ergot poisoning. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that was through, it was also kind of through the corn, right? Potentially, or the corn or the grain or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was yeah. like bread or mm-hmm. corn or something. Mm-hmm. It's like one of the, I think one of the uh, children of the corn movies had that scene, you know, they were like, oh, it's uh, the corn was, you know, infected or tainted. And he's like, no, what happened in Gatlin was the kids all went ape shit and killed their parents. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so uh, moving on from Never Again, we come to episode. Uh, Oh, we're only episode 14, but this is a, it's a pretty big one. Uh, Someone has this one too, right? Memento Mori. So this one was, uh, oh, so this one was written by Chris Carter, Vince Gilligan and John Chabon. So I guess he did come back. And Frank Spotnitz, it looks like. (laughs) (laughs) Directed by uh, Rob Bowman. Um, This is an episode that um, Jillian Anderson won the Emmy for her performance in this one. Um, And from IMDB, Scully attempts to come to terms with her inoperable cancer. Meanwhile, Mulder and the lone gunman break into a high security research lab to find the cure that could save their life. Or I call that part, the lone gunman turns into mission impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, generally I don't like the mythology episodes, but I love this one. It has a lot of emotion in it. Um, it kind of starts out with one of those voiceovers that Scully's doing, but it just sounds so sad and melancholy. And when Mulder shows up at the hospital and she tells him about her tumor, I, I think I cried this time. I cried last time because he is reaction to hearing it. He's like so upset. He starts stuttering and he just refuses to believe it. No, there's got to be a cure. 
Um, and this, I think, was one of my favorites of the seasons. I her, She does voiceovers throughout the whole um, episode. They're really good. The music is super sad, but it's really good, too. And Mulder's basically willing to do pretty much anything to get her a cure. Um, this is also the episode where I think I was completely convinced that Skinner was on their side. Because when Mulder asks him to go to the cigarette smoking man... Um, to set up an appointment because he's he's convinced she's got this cancer from um, the syndicate. So he's going to go to the cigarette smoking man and Skinner tells him no, but then he ends up going and is basically going to do whatever he has to do to get her the cure. Um, so I, I thought that episode was really good. And I love there's a line that Skinner says to um the cigarette smoking man. I think he's talking about Mulder, but he says at least he doesn't have to take the elevator up to get to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I thought that episode was very sad. I cried a couple of times, but it's such a good one. Yeah, I think it totally is. It's one of my favorites of the, of the season. And probably also probably one of my favorite episodes for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned this skull that the moldy moldy the moldy and sculler <laughs> interactions the, the scully and Mulder interactions let me start that again the scully and Mulder interactions in this episode are really strong they also have they're, they're they're very good at indicating how that relationship has grown and there are two sides to it right like what we we're talking about what we saw in last episode that you know Scully's tied to all of this and all of and, and a lot of this has happened to her because of Mulder and Mulder knows the same is true. And yet they've also been sort of the, the tether for both of them and allowed them to get through all this that have allowed them to survive all of these onslaughts that have occurred uh, partially because of the X-Files themselves where they just run into freaks all the time. And then the other aspect of this actual conspiracy and this, this, uh, clandestine group trying to crush them, you know, and they've survived all of it mostly because of each other. And you set that episode up earlier. We talked about where they, the, the kind of goofy star cross lover soulmate stuff that, that's related to the, uh, the idea of the reincarnation. And, but here we see that in essence, they kind of have sort of become uh, each other's like, if not soulmates, they're, they're definitely this connection of, they're the each one only really has one other person at this point that they can fully invest in and trust. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's each other. And you see it played out here that, you know, Mulder is always going out of his way to try and save her. And his, his world always gets upended when something happens to her, but it's, it's going even deeper now. It's like the, you, he'll be completely broken and sabotaged. In fact, you know, he's completely redirected, uh, when when this happens. So I, I like the character stuff more than anything else in the episode. And they've been building it in, like you mentioned, with their the, the kind of gentleness of their interactions, then also juxtaposed against the frustrations of their limitations of, of their relationship. Yeah. Yeah, and, and just uh, to Karen's point, I think um, I, I do love that... Uh, that interplay that you described uh, where uh, Skinner tells Mulder to not ask the cigarette smoking man for a favor. And then Skinner does it um, because it's just, I just love it when, you know, sort of 
strong, silent characters, like take one for the team. And that was yeah. like that, that really reminded me of that. It's like, wow. And he's never going to say anything you know, about it. No one will boss. ever know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like, it's almost like, I think it was very, um, you know, revealing of what Skinner thinks of himself that like he's expendable, what Mulder's not. Yeah. We, and it's pretty heavy. We talked in one of the early when he when when Skinner first comes in. We were talking about what is you know the relationship. Sometimes he seems like their big brother or almost like their dad, and that's that's kind of that protector element, right? Like he has that sort of protective feel for them, you know, that he's he's going to do this, and that and like you said, Karen, the fact that he does is even if at some point he ends up on the other side, it's sort of indicative, at least in this moment, he does care about them and their well being, you know, uh, despite. Mm-hmm. Uh, how twisted the machinations of all of this stuff get and at some level Skinner, if he can, he will try and help them. Okay. So we will go to episode 15. This is one that I had. This is uh Kaddish and it is, it was the 15th episode. It aired on February 16th, 1997. Uh, and, and this one was written by Howard Gordon and it was directed by Kim Manners. And, I I like this one because it's dealing with an element of of folklore in this particular case Jewish folklore that while um it was out there and it's been used in films and stories before at this current point I don't think we had seen it used a lot now after this you see it show up in a lot of uh sci-fi fantasy on a science fiction but fantasy and horror themed shows supernatural and other shows sort of will bring this idea in a lot but here i don't think it had been used excessively at least not in its actual sort of folkloric form but it starts out in, Bru- in brooklyn new york and you have a group of hasidic jews and they're at a cemetery for a funeral of one of their friends and he's he was beaten he was shot to death by a gang and th- that gang specifically were neo-nazis so you do have that um racist tensions going on in the in through this story and uh the last person to leave that the 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 cemetery there is ariel she's played by justine maselli and her father who's uh, jacob weiss he's played by david grow at they leave and then you get this moment where this figure goes back into the cemetery and you know essentially what's being happened is they're they're crafting this figure or this like uh form out of mud uh, that looks like a man and then later when one of the people that attacked isaac there is found dead and strangled guess what that's when Mulder and scully come into the story and investigate and it is definitely one of those stories where it could be the Mulder and scully shoehorned into the episode but i do think it's done in a relatively um interesting way because as they come in and they're interacting with the community I, I and I think it's done better here than in some of previous episodes we've seen that bring them into this uh, community they're not normally a part of and they just feel like they're on the outside of it but through the interviews uh, the, the guy who's the owner of the copy shop he's a racist as well uh, where where Isaac worked he tells them that the other guys work that, that worked for Brunez, Kurt Brunez is the, is, is the guy in question. He's played by Jonathan Whitaker. And they, they point out that, Hey, those guys work for him and you're in danger too. So there's this rumor spreading throughout this community as these people are dropping dead, that Isaac himself is back from the dead and is on this mission of revenge. And, uh, the, the boys that were involved hear about this. I think they're actually there when, when she's talking about it and they're, they're, concerned that he's coming for them next 
So they go, they dig up his grave, and guess what? There's the body intact. So don't want to go too much into the story uh, if you haven't seen this and you're interested in it, but the myth of the golem comes up, uh, which is a creature from Jewish mysticism, and specifically it's the idea that you're basically forming a a container or a vessel that will how that, that you can animate and bring to life. And this particular concept of the golem is that you can imbue it with a soul. So this golem, as they interact with it, I think the story has elements of a creature of the week, right? Of a monster. And there's an element of a revenge story. There's an element of a, of, of racial struggles within this community. And then there's also, I think because there, because the golem looks like Isaac and because you have this element of Ariel pining for this, this man that's gone from her life. Now there's elements of a ghost story that come in, in the, in the latter third, I guess, of the storyline that I really liked. And I thought kind of gave the, the episode some pathos and some kind of creepiness to it that maybe the, the rest of it initially didn't have. And I really liked it for that. The story is probably a little typical. We've probably seen some things like this before, but I think they handle the Gola mythology here better than, say, the stuff involving the Toliko earlier on. And I think the characters are more interesting here. The The story about the figure gaining, getting revenge is, you know, it is a little bit boilerplate. A lot of that reminded me, I felt like, you know, early on, Chris Carter mentioned that he was influenced by, you know, Kolchak the Night Stalker. A lot of this plot reminds me of a Kolchak the Night Stalker plot. But I think they mm -hmm. do a little bit more with it. And that that element of the golem and it's in its interactions and its relationship to Ariel is where I think it works really well. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I really like this one too. And, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, if you take all the supernatural elements out of this episode, it's still cool. Like the motivations of the characters yes. are all interesting and the investigations, uh, gripping and, and everything. So I, I think that's the, that's the key. That's what this had. One of the things this had that, um, that the teleco didn't, but, um, but yeah, I also just wanted to add, uh, Mark Snow's eerie, like golem that's, theme. Awesome. It, it's like you hear it at the end of the cold open. Yeah. It's like these biblical trumpets. Like it, it really conjures up what I think he wanted you to, yes. to feel. It's impressive. What he was trying uh, with Toliko, but here it works better. You know, it, it, it's just more evocative. Yeah. Yeah. Works great. Yeah, I thought this one was really good too. I like I like how um how you you were saying that if you if you take the the supernatural aspects out, it would still be a great story. And you could even have it where instead of the golem, it's the the father because you you know you find out that he was a bit of a uh, mercenary after the Second World War. He could have been the one uh, doing the revenge part, but but it is very cool. And and the golem is such an an underused uh, movie not monster because again, it depends on who who's, you know, who made the golem, but yeah. uh, this, the, uh, yeah, this one is, is very good. It really worked. I, uh, the end speech. Is it Ariel? You said is the main character, her, you know, the last 15 minutes of the episode, she gets so much time and she's so believable. She is just heartbroken and she had, you know, this great love that's taken from her. It's just a lot of, a lot of the, a lot of emotion in, in her portrayal in this episode. I think she's really strong. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. 
Um, and you know, it, I, this is one of the episodes I watch. My daughter was homesick and we were watching it together. And when this episode was done, she was like, Oh, I love the idea of the golem. And we, we ended up buying the old, uh, silent film, the golem. <laughs> the, oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh. Excited about it. And supernatural did have a really cool episode with, I don't know if you ever, if you saw that one, Karen, or if you watched supernatural, but they had an episode where they had a character and his golem and, I, I wish they had spun those characters off into their own show because it was pretty awesome. <laughs> I remember. I mean, I watched all the episodes. I don't remember that one. Yeah, it was cool because the actor from Welcome Back Cotter was like in the beginning and he was the guy who had originally had the golem and then his uh, his nephew inherited it and he was this big guy. And uh, But they, they were basically fighting Nazis. It was pretty uh, It was pretty cool. Um, oh wait i do remember that yeah yeah it would it would they would have been perfect characters to spin off i don't know how much they could have done with them but if they had sent them through you know if you'd seen them in 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 history or something that would have been kind of neat but um yeah i think uh i i like this one a lot and i think it was a, a fun monster of the week and it does exactly what you said victor because the characters are interesting the monster stuff doesn't necessarily need to be there but i thought that was well done too so so one thing, we'll go on to episode 16. Before we do, I want to mention that uh, Tommy, who was under the weather and still kind of soldiered on and, and, and <laughs> joined us, uh, he wasn't feeling well, so he jumped off. But, you know, he's covered his episodes, and uh, so hope he feels better soon. But we're going to go on to the next episode, which is Unrequited. And uh, that was uh, directed by Michael Lang. It's Howard Gordon did the story. And he did it. It looks like the story was written with Chris Carter, or at least uh, uh, created with Chris Carter, the story and not the script. But uh, this one, uh, there's not, I don't know that there's a whole lot to to say about it. Uh, for me personally, uh, we'll just mention, you know, the, the basic plot is an assassin targets military leaders and seems to be able to disappear. Mulder and Scully investigate radical groups try to stop the assassin before another general is killed. Mulder and Scully learn that the assassin is targeting the people who stopped the search for POWs in Vietnam. To me, it felt like they were trying to kind of go back and tap into the kind of things that worked in episodes like Sleep or that episode where the the uh, um, the, the, the guy uh, in the hospital bed could send his body out. You know, it seems like they're going for something here. Mm -hmm. I just didn't find it all that interesting, really. Uh, there wasn't a lot to me that I found that compelling. So uh, what did you guys think? Yeah, it's, it's a cool comment on uh, the, the sort of the, the PTSD state of mind of soldiers after Vietnam, just coming to terms with the fact that they almost died for questionable yeah. reasons. Um, but other than that, I don't, I don't know if it warrants a 42 minute, meditation I, I just think it's an interesting idea yeah and i think one of the problems is we, we've talked about how hey this episode would be cool even without the monster or without the supernatural element but it is x-files and so you do expect that element and here that element just isn't very interesting either you know i think if you're yeah. gonna pick that commentary like you said uh victor and we've seen plays on it in other episodes let's do something a little cooler with it let's make the power that the person has this did we talk dave you mentioned about how hey it seems like there's some with so many episodes some of these are just going to be filler this really seems like hey let's pull an old script out erase a couple lines write in a couple more lines in it's not that the acting or anything about it is particularly bad it's not it's just very it's excessively uh middle of the road i thought it's plain yeah it's yeah. very 
still like this made me remember how old <laughs> X-Files is because yes. they're talking about Vietnam veterans for one thing. They're talking about the new anti-terrorism laws after the Oklahoma City bombings. Yeah. Like yeah. it's yeah. it's very uh, set of this time. Uh, I did think it was funny that um, Mulder, a metal detector goes off and he starts emptying his pockets. He's continuing to talk on his phone and walks through the metal detector with no problems with his phone <laughs> while he's talking on. I thought that was funny. This this is an episode that I think it was Tommy earlier that said he couldn't believe that there was 24 episodes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this, this show, <laughs> since we're rewatching it and, and I always think of uh, Star Trek, the next generation, you know, if you've got 24 episodes, you get to try all kinds of things and take big swings and they don't all hit, you know? Mm. And then there's certain weeks That's where you're like, Oh, I forgot to, to have a script and you guys look tired. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was just thinking that. Like, I, I, I do remember episodes like that in, in pretty much every incarnation of Star Trek, yes. uh, where you're <laughs> like, that was the episode. But, you know, I mean, you got to put yourself in the writer's room. Yeah. It's 24 episodes. They do it in six months. It's a lot of work. So, oh, no, that's what I mean. Like, let's, yeah. you know, they, yeah. they're willing to, and it, it all, because of the amount of episodes, you can take the time to try those things, but mm, some work, some don't. Yeah, it's not no, terrible. Right, that's the thing. It no, is. It's, it's, not, it's, it's just kind of middle of the road. But again, like most of these middle of the road episodes, there's still stuff in here that works. And as I've said many times, mm-hmm. most of the time, if you put Mulder and Scully into the midst of this and you let them do their thing, like you mentioned stuff with him emptying his pockets and stuff, you still get these little nuggets that you remember later on, although I couldn't place it in an episode per se, right? Like I wouldn't, <laughs> I would say, I remember the time Mulder did this. It's like the Simpsons. Remember when they did that? But I don't know where it happened or when it happened, but um Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it's an episode. It, it is. It's an episode. <laughs> yeah, if if I had to sort of use deduction, I mean, this precedes the Tempest, Fugit, and Max episodes, yeah. which are big, um, you know, mythology episodes. I would say that they probably planned Tempest, Fugit to be episode sixteen, but they couldn't pull it off in time, mm-hmm. and then they dusted off uh, unrequited as an old script, and they're like, okay, let's just do yeah. this and. And then we'll have the time to do it. And I think as was mentioned earlier, we are in a point, I think Tommy is one mentions, we're at a point in the show where there are a certain kind, there's certain kinds of episodes that the X-Files does now, right? Like when sleep was done originally, it was maybe one of the first of its kind, you know, to, okay, we're going to deal specifically with the plight of these soldiers. And now we have powers and things like that, or the wronged person who gets powers. But then that becomes a thing you're almost expect X-Files to do. Right. And so it's sort of like, Hey, we need one of those episodes this mm-hmm. season. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try this. Let's move on though, to uh, like you mentioned, Victor Tempest Fugit, which is the beginning of a storyline. And it kind of, um, we we bring back some uh, a, a, an element of a story and it's a character that we've seen before. So I'm going to read the synopsis and I'll turn it over to everyone to kind of give it their thoughts. And we'll deal first with the first part of it and then the second part. Uh, so this is Tempest Fugit. It aired in March 16th of 1997. A passenger plane crashes and Mulder and Scully are asked to investigate the crash when they learn Max Fennig, played by Scott Bells, was aboard the plane. Mulder and Scully learn Fennig possessed information for them and that the plane might have been brought down by an unidentified flying object. Mulder and Scully search for clues at the crash site and find others might be staging a cover-up. 
we're in the classic X-Files territory here. It's a big storyline, but initially, at least, it isn't necessarily involving a lot of the new elements that we've seen pop up. So I was intrigued because I felt like we were going back to the beginning, in a sense, and back to where a lot of this started in terms of, of season one and the feel of season one. What did you guys think about this episode? Oh, yeah, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. Um, I, I thought it was a big, pretty big budget looking episode. And it's it's kind of a cool idea. The sets are very different yeah. than anything we've seen in the show before. And um, yeah, I just wanted to, to note that uh, the unlikely named uh, one of the, the burn victims that they find, uh, Lerald Rebune, that is the name of Mark Snow's mixer um, on the show. Uh, because I, when I worked with Mark, Lerald was there and we <laughs> all worked together. And I'm like, the name just stuck out of my mind. I was like, Lerald, I'm never going to forget that. Um, and, uh, you know, he's great. He's like, he worked on 24, Homeland, and obviously the rest of the X-Files with Mark. So. That's really cool. That's yeah, I thought this one, it's more entertaining than the last two-parter about the mythology. Yeah. Uh, Max is kind of, uh, I, I don't know, I feel really sorry for him. I don't, he, like, he doesn't have the, <laughs> doesn't end up having the best of lives. No. no. Yeah, Max is kind of like, he's almost like a uh, an almost Mulder, right? We He was in Fallen yeah, Angel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so he's he's kind of like he's got the impulses that Mulder does, but he didn't didn't have the you know the con- connections or whatever to to get on top of the investigation. So he's just constantly, you know, a victim of conspiracies. And I like how they handle that, and they do they do thread that needle again, right? That whole point in showing Mulder, sort of like like you said, the alternate Mulder. And I think that what we see here is Mulder and Scully recognizing that maybe more than. They did in that previous episode, the Fallen Angel episode, which was a which is a really cool early season one episode. I you're right, and that you know that set that you talk about, like the basically the um, the, the the set on the plane. They had used that uh, earlier in the in the beginning of the Toledo episode, but it just wasn't working right. <laughs> so they it was kind of their trial run, but they had it in full full effect here in in this episode but i thought uh, i also felt that the writing was pretty strong on particularly Mulder and scully here and in into the next episode that was called max and i just liked how they approached it and it's again giving this kind of character that we saw one off and i don't think we expected to see again they give him a well-rounded sort of feel uh in terms of, of who he is and who they learn you know, the, what they learn about him and his place in the conspiracy i thought it was very nicely done in that sense yeah was this the episode where the guy that's got the little crush on her <laughs> gets shot? Yeah. yeah. I think it's the next one, but yeah, it's the it's same. In the, it's, it's in this okay. arc. Yeah. It's like a cliffhanger, right? Yeah. Like they're in that bar again um, yeah. Yeah. where they had her birthday party or whatever it was before. Yep. Yep. Yes. That was sad. I like that character. I know he was sweet. Pendril, that plane right? crash. That Pendril. The yeah. Pendril. That's his name. And the the set with the plane crash. That was big. That seemed like a like you were watching a movie. Oh, where they're reconstructing the plane. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that yeah. and just when they're out and you see like the whole plane all over the. It, it just looked. It was like a big set. 
Do they show Max's abduction in this one or is it in the next one? I can't remember. Yeah, it's all like one big episode, right? So. It is, yeah. Yeah, and they built that during the third season because they wanted to, they, they did this big mock up of a Boeing so they could simulate like a crash. But then they, I guess they'd spent so much on it that like Chris Carter was like, you know what, let's use this again and we'll use it during the fourth season. Well, you know, we can also use it as the crash, right? So, right, uh, right. Yeah. But, and I, I heard that I had read that Scott uh, Bellis, who plays Max, had he'd auditioned for other roles on the show, you know, in that period between when he was in Fallen Angel and this point. Um, but they they were like, okay, your character that you previously did was too memorable. We can't kind of put you back in because, you know, there's a lot of actors that do show up like multiple times in the X-Files. Uh, oh, know, yeah. Terry O'Quinn shows up a couple of times and he's over on Millennium and things like that. So I don't know if this world just has three guys that look like Terry O'Quinn. I guess so. Um, but in, <laughs> but they, they kept rejecting him because like you're, you're, you're too recognizable. So eventually they just bring Max Fennig back. And I think it was a good choice because of a lot of what you had noted the first time Victor about his character and about his sort of parallels to Mulder and then how it plays out here. And then what we ultimately see happen to him and, you know, it again, foreshadowing and, and giving the audience reasons to worry about Mulder and the ultimate destination of his path, right? Yep. And so how about Max, which sort of, again, takes that story and finishes it up? I really liked the interactions between Mulder and Scully, particularly at the very end of this episode. Like, I liked the way the story wrapped up, but it was those scenes towards the end that felt like quintessential X-File scenes, like... Those are, to me, really memorable interactions between the two of them. Uh, again, something I didn't necessarily remember where it happened in the in the context of the story, but I feel like we have them pretty firmly, like, you know, not they're not hooked up, but we see them interacting in a way that's been deeper than anything they've done before. Hmm. And and for and you get a better look at their two at the ideologies, right? It's not just the squabbling back and forth. It's like attempts to understand uh, the differing perspectives. He gives her that Apollo 11 (laughs) keychain, and she goes on that long explanation of why he got it. And he's like, I just thought it was pretty or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. I thought that was perfect though. Yeah. She does most of the talking there. It's usually, yeah, but he's like, I just, and I mean, but in the way he says it, it's sort of like clearly like, yeah, you got it. (laughs) Uh Mm-hmm. So anything else about uh, this two-parter? Again, I don't think it necessarily does a ton for the overall mythology per se, but I think it does start to wrap things up or at least repackage things in a way that they can kind of move towards this this movie that they want to do. And I think they were playing a song on this episode that was on the soundtrack for, I think, the movie, that unmarked helicopter song. Oh, really? <laughs> I think so. I think I remember here, and I wrote it down, but I, I can't remember what scene it was I'll have in. To look that up. That's cool because yeah, I'm I'm very curious at this point now, knowing that it was filmed like directly after this, uh, that how many things were threaded through and how much was prepped, and 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 if season five, like how that all came together. So I'm I'm interested. I didn't do probably enough research on that end initially, but I'm uh, kind of interested in doing that between this when we do this and the next one. So. We have those two episodes together and we come out and that's really the last uh, the last two parter we have before we get to the the resolution, you know, not the resolution, but the conclusion of the season. 
yeah so synchrony is the epi- is the 19th episode of the x-files it, it's aired april 13th 1997 and the very basic plot of this one uh it's for for one i think we're firmly in the territory of science fiction here and not just the sort of alien conspiracy science fiction that we've been seeing it kind of goes for something a little bit more out there i think when we just mentioned hey uh let's take a shot at this and let's try something a little different that's what you're definitely getting i think in this episode basic plot a strange old man played by michael fairman tries to warn dr jason nichols played by joseph uh, fuga of the death of a competing student but nichols is arrested when the old man can't be found when bodies begin to show up frozen Nichols is blamed since he's involved in cryobiology. Uh, this story go it, it is sort of a puzzle mystery episode. Uh, Mulder and Scully and their involvement in the story, I think, is fine. And but in, in essentially, it does feel like this was a sci-fi story conceived as a sci-fi story, and things are clearly not the way they seem to be. But at the same time, I was watching this one with my kids too. It wasn't very long before my kids are like, you know what? I think time travel is involved, and indeed, time travel sort of is involved. <laughs> I I enjoyed the episode. I think it was just fine. I think that it would have been better as a standalone story where they could have teased out the time travel elements and not have been so concerned about it being in X Files. You know where we all these other elements take up some time. I'd have rather just seen a very cool uh, story focused on the implications of what's happening in the episode. Um, I, I will say that I think that but towards the end, I kind of did like how the story begins to wrap up, but there, there are plot holes here that I don't, that I think just aren't quite well thought out. You know, it's not just that, Oh, that that's did i did i miss something do i need to go back i I just think that maybe the writers didn't quite at some point i feel they twist themselves in knots and they just sort of skip over it in a movie like terminator you go with it because schwarzenegger just blew up a truck or something right but there's a couple (laughs) a couple scenes here where i would like i'd like a little more time spent on that not as much on this but i think it's a fine it's a fun episode and i i always enjoy when they do try to try a different sci-fi story or something's a little bit out there this does though go in that box of once you guys have seen this, you still have quite, you know, you're still completely skeptical. <laughs> it's one of those, those oh, X-Files yeah. where we seem like we almost have a irrefutable proof at one point And Scully proof. is still like, yep, I'm going to forget about this tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's actually, it's really, it's a really insidious uh, idea because um, I mean, it's, it, it basically, it, like you said, Nathan, it's, it's a Terminator type of, uh, time travel story where you know somebody's traveling in time and <laughs> and by the way anybody in the in the know like if you ever see an elderly character <laughs> that looks bad in a hollywood yes. production it's probably time travel yeah. um because you rarely see elderly characters unfortunately <laughs> you mean, old, but, <laughs> you mean an old person in general i saw the bad old makeup yeah. and thought okay something's going on here but you just mean when old people's people over 30 show up in a <laughs> I know. I put I put it together within five minutes. Yeah, I was too. like, "Oh, it's the old version of yeah, that guy." That's what my yeah. kids said. Uh, like, but, oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, but um, but it does have. I, I mean, what's insidious about it? I think is that at this point, even though they never come back to it, as far as I know, anything could be time travel. Like, if something shows up from the future, it could just be somebody time traveling. Yeah. What if the CSM uh, gets a hold of this? <laughs> Or has yeah, already had exactly. it. That explains all the yeah. all the plot holes. It's not it's not Chris Carter changing his mind. It's the cigarette smoking man adjusting the timeline. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, so the, yeah, the, the one thing that I think I'd never seen before, a really cool idea in this is that, uh, and this has become central to the plot, is that time travel, <laughs> successful time travel, is only possible if the body temperature is super, super low. It's like an absolute zero. And uh, that's why it's not easily done. Um, so it, it, it goes in tandem with uh, revol- you know, uh, revolutionary advances in cryotechnology, cryobiology. Um, and, um, I really like that. So anyway, I, I, but I did really enjoy it. Yeah. It's a fun, it's a fun episode. I, I think that I like the ideas and everything in it so much. I would have liked to seen it, you know, uh, and later we do get some of these. I would, I, at this point in season four is where I started to feel like, you know, it'd be great. Let's get some two parters that have nothing to do with the mythology and are just allowed to be more complex monster of the weeks. This would have been a good example, I think, of a story that could have used another episode to to flesh its ideas out fully. And they do start to do yeah. that later on. The problem, I think, what happens later on is the stories they choose aren't as interesting as maybe what this one was. So, um, yeah. but that uh, uh, Dave or um, Karen, did you have anything else to add on on this episode? This is another one of the ones I, I I feel like as soon as we recorded season three, I started watching season four. So some of these episodes I watched quite a while ago, I, I feel like I don't have enough memory of this one to really comment. Yeah, I got to close the gap better next time. Like I was thinking about it. Like, <laughs> it's not your fault. No, I was like, we got to watch season five. But I felt the same way. I was like, I got to watch season five and then record it because um, – uh, yeah, there were some of these. I'm like, huh? Didn't uh, Karen? Do you have anything on this one? I couldn't tell. I I wrote down either it was over my head or I don't remember it. <laughs> it was one of these two. I'm gonna go with that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that takes us to episode 20 as we come down to the. Uh, we start to wrap this up with small potatoes, and I think you had this episode, Victor. Correct? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, small potatoes. Uh, really loved this episode. Um, it, like the title suggests, nothing major happens to the characters, to the main characters in this one. But uh, it co-stars uh, Darren Morgan, right? Like the, the yeah, flute man. Yep. <laughs> he he's playing this dude <laughs> in this uh, in this town. Who? Yeah, the, the, I guess the mystery is five unrelated women give birth to babies with tails. Which, uh, yeah, I don't know if that's a reference to Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude, but um, (laughs) it's, you know. Gilligan says literally, he says they originally were going to be wings, but they just changed them to tails because it was funnier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it is kind of uh, off-putting when you see it. You're like, ooh. (laughs) Um, But, um, yeah, I, I think it's it was written by uh, Vince Gilligan, and that kind of makes sense to me because it's done with that sort of tongue-in-cheek humor, uh, and the reveals are sort of they're very humorous. Like uh, you know, Mulder's interviewing the the first woman uh, who who that we're aware of that's given birth, <laughs> and, and then he's he, he's like, tell tell us about your boyfriend, and they're like, well, he comes from this far off planet, and Mulder's like, oh really? <laughs> yeah, and, right. And I believe like, it. Yeah, I believe it. <laughs> yeah, and and his la- name's Luke Skywalker, and Mulder's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, no, yeah, <laughs> like, his face. <laughs> yeah, but I did think that um, overall, like um, the the subtleties of Duchovny's performance, that I think a lot of people have made fun of um, up to the, up to this point. Uh, I think really pay off oh, in this d- episode. That's my friggin' note exactly. 
Me yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> he, he is his his hangout time with Scully in this sort of lighter mm-hmm. mystery is brilliant. Like he really, I really thought he was on fire in this episode. Um, and uh, highly, highly, highly recommended just for that. Uh, the the when he, when when he's uh, impersonating himself, like when when Duchovny is yeah. playing. Uh, Eddie. What is the He's playing uh, Eddie, Eddie. Okay, okay, yeah. pretending to be right. Mulder? Right, and you That's can exactly see it. You can see it. Like it, he's definitely not Mulder. It is. It is beautiful. It's perfect. He, he really is a subtle but very good. Actor. And he's living out all the shippers' fantasies, right? At this point, like, it's like <laughs> yes, like, yes. Here it is. Here it is, guys. And they always do that. Like, oh, it's just a dream, or they're on a Nazi and sub I, or something. But just kidding. I, I don't know if you wrote down, Victor, that like the what the statement Max says to him at the end. I, I can't remember exactly how it is, but it's just so pitch perfect um oh, something yeah. about being, yeah yeah what, I, I was born a loser yeah, but uh, you're one by choice that's it that's it yes he says you should live a little <laughs> which is basically like go hook up with scully <laughs> treat right? yourself yeah, treat yourself <laughs> okay but but i think this is the episode i was referencing where yeah this is the one like humor episode but there's that sinister uh, undertone because of what Eddie's doing right like what he's doing mm-hmm. with his ability mm-hmm. and even that funny light scene is like this guy's trying to, to rape Scully with the face of her best friend and, and partner, basically. And so yeah. there is this kind of psychological darkness underneath of it. And then, the, but, but I think it's interesting too, because at the end, the non throwaway part of this is that it causes Mulder and Scully to think about things, right. Or to consider elements of their relationship in a sense in an awkward sort of way. But I mean, still, <laughs> I think, I think yeah. that's, what's kind of cool about it is it seems like, you know, no, he doesn't. He he doesn't. Uh, thankfully, he doesn't fulfill his plan there with Scully. But it still kind of leaves them both sort of like discombobulated. <laughs> I think I him. Love- I think him more than her. Yes, I I, I, I would agree oh, with yeah. that. Yes. <laughs> when he asks her if she could like be anyone, and she says. <laughs> Eleanor yeah. Roosevelt. His face is like, ew, really? And yeah. then Jillian Anderson went on to play yeah, Eleanor did. Roosevelt. Did she yeah. Really? Yes, she did. Okay. I knew she played Margaret Thatcher, but. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's something that's upcoming, isn't it? Oh, has she not I think done it, it was, yet? Uh, she won an Emmy, I think. I don't know if it's. Oh, I didn't see I, it, but I, I know that sure she, she had or was or something. Yeah. There's a lot of funny parts in this, and I I can't even name them all. But when he's as Mulder, that's the best. When he's in the mirror talking to himself, yeah. are you looking at me? Yeah. <laughs> and then I thought it's- for sure he was going to shoot himself as he pulls the gun out and the clip yeah. falls out yeah. on the floor. We had a Barney Fife oh, movie. Yeah. There. We had an actual character named Barney earlier, but this was uh, <laughs> like a, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think the, the the big mystery of this episode is that it wasn't written by Darren Morgan. Uh, it really seems like one of his episodes. It does, and I think that like was probably Gilligan what it kind of was, was like the Vince Gilligan trying to take a shot at it. And then like here you've got um, Darren Morgan kind of playing the character in the middle of it. So, you know, it's sort of like, hey, he has my blessing. <laughs> Go for it. This is probably yeah. a good episode if you've got one of those friends who's just like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to commit to... 11 seasons the x-files it sounds so so straight like show them this up this is just fun and funny if you don't if i don't know you should be able to hook someone onto the show with this episode yep 
And did you notice the stupendous Yappy was in that magazine in the beginning? Yep, yep. <laughs> oh, yes. And awesome. uh, I think the other thing here that is that um, you've got uh, in the in the context of the episode, if you were to show it, like Dave says to someone, say, oh, here's what, you know, it's light, it's funny. And you get a very good sense of Mulder and Scully and their dynamic, which is, of course, the thing that the show really runs on, right? Um, yep. And for such a dark trajectory for these characters, you know, where Mulder is sort of coming apart at the seams. I mean, he always he, he is almost every season, but here it's like it seems like he's running up. A, he's he's now trying to save Scully. He's trying to do these other things, and he's running up against the wall of you know there are almost no wins for them in this season so far, right? Like everyone that they they want that that that's an outlet to be on their side is either killed or taken out of the picture. Their friends around them are starting to die. Uh, you know, their relationship is there's the threat that one of them will be gone. And, you know, so they're both in this situation. It's nice to sort of have an episode. It's the only episode like this where you get to have a little bit of a reprieve. But uh, and then the next episode is Zero Sum. It aired on uh, April 27th, 1997. I'll read the synopsis. Uh, we kind of come back here a little bit to the killer bees, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in a different sense. <laughs> a swarm of bees kills a postal worker, and at the orders of the smoking man, Skinner covers the crime. When Skinner learns he's being set up, Skinner must convince Fox that he's being framed. And this is what the season's one, like, obligatory, give Skinner an episode <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. I don't think it works as well as the previous one. I think that involved the no. the, the phantom and the, and the potential murder of the of the escort, you know, that was in, uh, was it last season or the season before? But, um, right. What did you guys think of this episode of zero sum? I, I think it's cool that you kind of see the results of Skinner having made a deal with the cigarette yeah. smoking man. Um, it's like, he's got to pay and pay and pay and probably will be doing it for the rest of the cigarette smoking man's life, uh, for Scully's cancer recovery. Uh, and, um, yeah, I, I thought it was a, a good, I, I really like Skinner. I, I think he's an underused actor in, in the world of TV and film, but, um, he's, he's heavily featured in this episode. So you got that and it's got bees in it and I'm personally super afraid of bees. So, uh, I, you know, I was gripping my, my armchair throughout this episode. <laughs> yes. And I feel like, did you have anything on this one, Dave? Um, no, I, I, uh, I did like this one. My, the only note I have is that William Davis is very sinister in this episode, but this might be another one that I, hmm, I just don't have enough memory of to, to really comment very well on. Me either. I didn't realize that this was like his payback. This is what he had to do after he made that deal with the cigarette smoking man. But I think I, 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 watched it not that long ago but i don't remember it yeah i think what's interesting it's it's what you said victor you kind of see that like you said he's finally kind of got him in his pocket even back to that previous episode where we weren't sure it was like okay is this ghost or this wraith something they're using to sort of control skinner and it's like they finally managed to do it and you go back to that supernatural plot line, this the tahibi series supernatural where You've got these characters that, you know, the, the demons are always trying to use their relationships against them so they can get, you know, if I can't get you this way, I'm going to get you this way. And it's sort of what's happened here, right? They finally, 
They finally have got Skinner by using those people around him. And it goes back to what Davis says in the beginning. Well, the people we have to worry about is guy has nothing to lose. You know, what angle do we play then? Yep, I agree. So um, we can go on to episode uh, 22, which is Elegy. The air date on this was May 4th, 1997. And Elegy is actually one of the episodes, uh, the third episode I'd chosen. And I think what's kind of fun sometimes about waiting to the, the end to choose the episodes, kind of, you know, is that you, a lot of times you don't end up picking the episode that maybe was your absolute favorite, but then you kind of look around and pick episodes, which is kind of what happened here. I think um, the episodes I picked this time, that they're they're not flawless, but they're interesting in certain ways. And I think this is an episode that, for me, it was one that sparked an instant memory the minute I saw it. And I do think I ended up seeing – I wasn't watching The X-Files super regular, but it was about the time when I started to see it because I saw the last few episodes before this season ended, and I was all in for season five. And this episode has, I think, one of the creepiest, to me, cold opens, particularly if you just happen to kind of walk into the room and see it. And you might not even know you're watching the X-Files. But uh, you've got um, the, the opening. You've got um, Angie Patero, who's played by Alex Berhansky. He's the owner of this bowling alley. And he's uh, one of his employees who's a, an autistic man named Harold Spooler. He's played by Stephen M. Porter. He's kind of um, getting overwhelmed. He's trying to put the shoes back in. And he's he's just no, I'm not done, I'm not done. And he tells the tells him just go home, go home for the evening. It's clear that that Angie and uh, Harold are friends, and you know he's kind of look out for him. And he and when he says go home, he's kind of going back to the sort of like uh, uh, the hospital where he where he stays, where he's cared for. So, but as soon as he leaves, Angie discovers that there's this. Uh, he sees blood like at the end of one of the lanes and he discovers when he looks up inside of it that there's a an injured girl sort of stuffed up inside of the automated pin setter she's just like up inside of it but she looks really strange she's sort of uh pale looking she almost looks like to me it looks like you can almost see through her it seems like at this point she's trying to speak but no words are coming out and then he notices when he runs, he's going to call the police and he hears the siren at the same moment he's dialing the phone. And he runs outside and that's when he's he's about to tell them and he sees a dead body of the exact same girl. So she's hanging out of the interior of a car. And then when he tells uh, Mulder and Scully about this, uh, Mulder's thinking, oh, you and you know again right off the bat you encountered a ghost but he's on the x-files he should be thinking these things i guess at this point and you've mm -hmm. got three again this keeps happening three similar things happen and you got a murder each time and then they find on the word the words on the written on the scratched into the bowling alley lane and that lane where he saw the ghost says she is me and but no one knows what that means and then you bring in uh, different characters. There's a detective Hodick played by Daniel Kameen, who he tells Mulder and Scully that the caller uh, left them you know, a message saying that uh, she is me. So they confirm, and and everyone's Hodick is sort of like they're chiding Mulder and everything, but he's got this information. They're like, oh yeah, you go check it out, and he doesn't he doesn't stop and say, oh by the way, that was scrawled into the bottom. You know, like that's a legitimate clue. But no, you guys are you guys aren't taking this seriously, so screw you. Uh, but <laughs> My the thing as the episode continues, we see Harold in the psychiatric center, right where he where he lives, and we see these characters in the psychiatric center, and then it almost becomes a one flew over the cuckoo's nest episode. And I think 
in an essence, that sort of, for me anyway, weakens it some. You know, uh, you have a, a very much like a nurse ratchet character. The central mystery of who is committing these murders, I think no one necessarily is assuming it's Harold because he seems like such the obvious uh, suspect, but we realize or suspect that, you know, something else is going on with him, that he's being visited by these visions and not necessarily the culprit. And so who the killer is just seems really sort of uh, just out of left field. You know, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of thought put into that element of it. I love the bowling alley though. It's the setting of a, of a X-Files episode. And I actually wish that more of the episode occurred in the bowling alley, but I think the, the images of the ghosts are creepy. And what I also like though, is uh, you know, the Scully, uh, interactions with Mulder in this episode are really strong too. I like everything that's going on there and that there are, there are moments where we do see that concern again between the two of them and Mulder for Scully. But overall, I think it's a fun episode. The biggest issue I have, I think is that it's another one of these episodes that falls into what we talked about. It takes in the nineties and their depiction of autism is you know, it's like anybody with autism is automatically like a magical, you know, like what Mulder <laughs> determines about him and what's going on. Uh, it, it does feel like, oh, you, you, you're, you're magical or you're special in this in this in this way that's going to allow you to do all these things. And it's just a it those scenes feel so reductive and those characters feel like such like caricatures that I just don't think that stuff works as well. But overall, and then what the what the, the 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 nurse here, what she's ultimately trying to do, what they surmise about that is very interesting. But I think it comes so far out of left field that it's not built it's not built into the story enough. But I still like it because those girls shoved up inside the bowling alley is creepy. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, it is. Yeah, I I uh, I do think I I do think uh, I agree with you about the nurse. It's not set up very well. It's too bad too because it is a fun episode. Um, it's a little sad too. I, I, I don't, I don't remember when in the episode it takes place, but in my notes I had that uh, my wife must have been cutting onions when Mister Pinheiro died because <laughs> I started getting misty. Yeah, yeah, and it. You know, the other thing about this, we've had this continual thing since the Leonard Betts episode. The the gradual revel- realizations with with Scully about what's going to to happen to her, right? Like, oh, I, he, he said he's targeted me. He targets people with cancer. I probably have cancer. There's a couple episodes of dealing with that. Then there's the confirmation that I do. And then in this episode, everyone who sees those ghosts dies, right? Like they're, they're headed for right. death. And it's like the confirmation mm-hmm. and it's sort of sealed for her, you know, all along the way. It's been, hey, we can beat this. Oh. It's not so bad. And there are moments here too where you see Mulder legitimately concerned for her when there is it this episode she has a nosebleed or something I think yeah and he, he just, it so, felt yeah. very organic and natural and the look on his the look of concern on his face and the way he was interacting with her I just thought that all of that was well done so I do really like the episode I just think that it's messy in a lot of ways yeah I, and oh sorry Karen no go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, as really quickly, as an aside, I, I think Nathan, you're 100 percent right about uh, you know them going. Let's do a sort of a one floor of the cuckoo's nest thing because Sydney Lassick, who I think is the bowling alley guy, was in One Flew Over the oh Cuckoo's gosh, Nest. Right? Oh. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, the the nurse, the ratchet like nurse, is Nancy Fish, who plays the. <laughs> 
the the kind of abrasive nurse in Exorcist Three. Yes, that's um, it. That's oh, where that's right. Yeah, where George C. Scott is like, it is not in the yeah. file. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. Was Was Lasik in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Uh, let me look it up. Actually, I'm right here on IMDb. I just I just don't remember him in that movie. Yeah. Oh yeah, well, yeah. He's right there. Yeah, yeah. He was Charlie Cheswick. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's kind of a nice, uh, unassuming patient. So he's playing the same guy. I wonder how many times he Could plays that character. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he's the bowling alley guy, so he's not. Yeah, he was the. He's um right. Was who was Lassick? No, 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 no. Lassick is he's in the hospital. He's his. He's his roommate. Uh, Alex right? Baranski oh, is, is, is Angelo Pintero. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, he is kind of playing. The <laughs> he's <story>. just older. <laughs> I like all the the killer serial killer episodes. I think they're good. They don't really say why this nurse decided to start taking his meds because isn't that sort of what makes her do like triggers this violent behavior? She starts killing people. They don't really like say why she starts sort of implied it. that it's because her husband left her. I, I mean, that's the oh. only thing we hear about her life that's out of like really out of kilter. And so I wonder if it was like that. You know, like. Um, yeah. I guess it just seems like an odd kind of medication. To it does, and, steal it, and start it, it, that's also weirdly kind of like almost an, not insulting, but it's another thing too. It's like, oh, she mm-hmm. lost her husband, so she's taking some drugs. It's like some people end up dating Michael Scott, and some people take drugs. You know, it's like don't get a divorce. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one of the through lines of the season is uh, healthcare commentary, and this could kind of tie into that. Maybe mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm reaching. That part felt very sloppy. Like, I, I think it could have been because when she says he was trying to kill his happiness, like, it seems half-assed in the context of this episode, but it seems like it could have been a really cool thing to explore, like, had that been built mm. into the episode. But I was still at the point, I just wanted a bowling alley ghost episode, truly. truly. <laughs> <laughs> it feels such like, that's such, like, the ghost in the bowling alley feels like such an American thing that it would have been perfect for the X-Files. <laughs> And even yeah. with it being messy, I thought it was still yeah, good. And it still had the stuff with Mulder and Scully was still good, too. And he says, I know what you're afraid of, and I'm afraid of the same thing. Yeah. Oh, that was sad. Mm. Yeah, in some ways, some of the little things like this in these episodes filtered through were more effective to me than any of the big moments over the years that they tried to like tease you with in terms of their their relationship because i think what those moments say is that it doesn't matter if they ever romantically hook up they have this deeper mm-hmm. connection they're always going to be there for one another when it really matters which i think is much more touching than you know if they end up smooching an episode or something <laughs> and i think it's setting the up the, the movie pretty well in that that regard anyone have any other comments about this one it is one that like every time it was on tv i i would watch it <laughs> And I think this was another one my daughter watched with me. And now I think she also can have that story that, hey, when I was a kid, I saw this girl jammed up in the, the, the bowling alley. <laughs> and we go bowling every week. They're in a little, like, junior bowling league. So oh, it's even more no. helpful. So oh, no. you know, you're like, throw the ball. That's, here, if you needed how to aim it, aim right where the ghost girl would be, right? Uh, I don't <laughs> actually say that. <laughs> they they creepified a totally innocent setting. Uh, yeah, my kids are used to that. Now they do it. They're like... 
Imagine if there were clowns down here. It's, it's not even a sewer drain. It's like the <laughs> yeah. bottom of the ball pit at the Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> Which I think they did that in the movie <laughs> Clown, actually, now that I think about it. But uh, anyway, <laughs> moving on or moving somewhere. Uh, we're we're right there. We're near the very end, right? We're up again. Demons. Is that the next episode? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Episode uh, yep. 23, Demons. And I think, uh, Karen, do you have this one? Or you'd signed up for this one? Yep. yep. This one's mine. This one is uh, written by Chris Carter, R.W. Goodwin, and John Chabon again. Um, directed by Kim Manners, and it aired uh, May 11th of 1997 from IMDb. Uh, Covered in blood and suffering from amnesia, Mulder pieces together the events of the last few days but the trail leads to a double murder that appears to have been committed with Mulder's weapon. And um, this episode starts out, Mulder calls Scully from a motel room in Rhode Island at 4.50 a.m., covered in blood, doesn't remember anything, and she must literally jump out of bed and drive 200 miles an hour because she gets to him from D.C., at 6 15 a.m right and you know if you live on the east coast you know that's kind of far <laughs> i don't think that's possible mm-hmm. but in all fairness she does screech to a complete halt when she gets there so she was probably speeding the whole way um and throughout this whole episode they're trying to figure out what exactly happened um they're retracing Mulder's steps they find these bodies that appeared to have been shot by his gum um we don't know if he did it or not except scully refuses to believe that he did um like she doesn't believe he could have possibly done this but honestly when i started watching this i couldn't remember i was like did he kill them in self-defense like i couldn't remember what happened there um when they figure out the link between Mulder and the other people that it's this doctor that's giving them all this extremely radical treatment even though Mulder has refused this entire episode all of Scully's requests for him to go see a regular doctor um, Mm -hmm. because he's having seizures and he has this amnesia no he wants to let this crazy doctor drill a hole in his head while he shoots him full of ketamine so that he can um, you know have some memories from when he was a kid I do not understand that at all. This is where Tommy um, would say it seems like one of those things Mulder would just be into. <laughs> yeah, it's totally in line with yeah. Mulder. <laughs> um, and in the this is another one where at the end of this episode, Scully mentioned she's concerned that this procedure will have a lasting effect. Uh, yeah, in real life, Mulder does not keep his gun after this. There's no way he would still be a field agent, although... I guess at this point, neither one of them probably would in real life. You um, begin to wonder if he even has a real gun. If they, you know, they're like in the basement, like the whole <laughs> they just time. Give him a rubber gun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, two, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say two two things about this. Um, one is, uh, I mean, Doctor Goldstein <laughs> um, is played by uh, Mike Nussbaum, who basically is doing Vincent Price. Indeed, he is. <laughs> And the, yeah, and and I'll if I if I had a <laughs> a therapist or a, a psychologist uh, that I was seeing that reminded me too much of Vincent Price, I'd be like, yeah, maybe 
See you later, Doctor Price. I mean, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I love Vincent Price, but I wouldn't want him as a doctor. Um, <laughs> I, I once had a dentist yeah. in the mid two thousands that said, "You know who my hero is? House," referring to the you know the the doctor. And I, <laughs> that was the last time I went to that dentist. Oh, I mean, if he yeah. said you know yeah. uh, Lawrence Olivier, that also would have been a warning sign. So, <laughs> is it yeah. safe? Yeah. Is it safe? <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, the other thing is, I mean, I think it's a really cool neo-noir story, but um, the fact that it's Mulder that is sus- suspect, it, it kind of, um, uh, it, it, it ruined the conclusion for me because I was like, well, it's, it's, he didn't do yeah. it. Like, you know, it, it can't be him. It's got to be something else. Um, but, you know, I was still on board. To, so, you know, like, who, well, then who did it? Um, but anyway, I think looking back at watching this as an episode, now that you've seen the full arc of everything, the most interesting thing I think is that they have Chris Owens cast as the young cigarette smoking man, right? Like that, uh, uh, he was in the, he was in the, uh, musings one and he's back here again, but I think I didn't really notice that until, Oh wait, this is a guy who later is agent spender, right? Like in seasons five and six. And uh, he actually plays yeah. the great Mutato later in the, in the postmodern. Does he really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. So, but it's interesting. And, you know, when we learn about Spender and everything, as he's brought into the storyline, I think that makes perfect sense. Uh, and, and because of how they're filming this, because I think Spender shows up in season five, they probably already have this in mind. So when he shows up in the, these two, this two episodes, but for whatever reason, I just think kind of, didn't it didn't click with me until I was like there's a silhouette or something of him or when he's arguing with Mulder's dad and like the flashback or the dream sequence or whatever it is that was sort of when I like recognized it and I I kind of agree like I just wasn't like into this episode that much because you're right like it's sort of like we've seen a couple times now we saw Skinner get you sort of wrongly accused now in Skinner's case it was maybe a little more interesting because you know technically speaking he's he could have been expendable particularly at that point in the story right Mm. Uh, that maybe yeah. you know something could happen to him that would take him out of the story. Well, here we it's Mulder, and uh, I mean they run into this same problem one episode later, right? <laughs> In a different way. Yeah. You, well, I think at, yeah, even at that point, like you think Skinner might be a bad guy. Yeah. So like you know, there, like Mr. X. We thought Mr. X was a good guy. To matter, and I think they made a big mistake putting this one back to back with the very next episode because of again, it's a Mulder in distress but are we going to buy it situation immediately after mm. we've seen him barely recover from this one. <laughs> and so I just yeah. think our, your, your, your willingness to think what, but I think the rest of the season has been so well pitched towards this downward trajectory for these two that, Hey, maybe the system could crush them. I think if this one hadn't sat where it was, what happens next episode, we might be more willing to be like, Oh, did this actually happen? But as such, I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh, season's over, you know. <laughs> but let's. I think. Go yeah. ahead. Well, just, I just want. Oh, sorry. I, I just wanted to add one more thing, uh, just on what you've said, Nathan. Um, the Chris Owens, the fact that he's cast in multiple roles in the X Files, I think, is really cool because uh, it, it almost explains, like, you know, cigarette smoking man just has that familiar face that, like, he could be anyone, and I yeah. that arcane edge to the character is really appropriate. And, well, and, and in the case of, and you know, people who listen to this who who have watched the X Files, I won't go into too much, but in the case of Jeffrey Spender, it makes perfect sense actually why you know. And then, and, and when he's the mutato, he's sort of under all this makeup. But you're right, like, yeah, it's like, uh, 
it's interesting. And I think what it's intended to do when he cast him later, that's why knowing that they film make the film in season uh, at the end of season four, and then they're bringing people back to bring him back in in his role. He's instant. You're interested. You're instantly not trusting him, right? Because he looks like the cigarette smoking man as a as a <laughs> as a twenty something man or thirty something man. So. Um, yeah, I think all that's cool. And I don't think I would have really recognized all that stuff except for us going back through it this time. I think, I think that's the, the to, we're about to wrap this up, but to speak to the power, I think of this, these first, particularly these early seasons, these first five seasons specifically, there is a tightness, even when some of the episodes are sloppy, there's a tightness to it in an age when they weren't doing serialized stories very much that, for this to be almost the the prototype, you know what I mean? For the kinds of things we get now, it wasn't a show like lost looks a lot more like that, but this, these mythology episodes really, if you think about, I want to say like an elegy when they start referencing her cancer, uh, in, and I guess also in the never again, like the Scully's cancer, I think is the first like serialized element that gets brought in through the show. That's not a part of the mythology episodes. You know what I mean? Like, if you think about it, it's the one through line that continues to develop even when... Because if you think about it, a lot of the, a lot of the um, Monster of the Week episodes, and some of them do take place in different times, That you know, the, when Skull, Mulder was a younger agent or something like that. But for the most part, you, they wouldn't necessarily have to happen in order, most of these. You know, some of the episodes in season mm-hmm. three could have happened at any point in time since Mulder and Scully were part of the X Files, except that maybe this character's there and they weren't there before. But other than that, that I think the difference here in this season is m- almost every every episode that happens after she has the cancer not only acknowledges the cancer, but shows a development of her mindset towards it and the way Mulder is interacting with her. And I don't think that was done very often in 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 shows with a serialized theme before. Hmm. So hmm. how about that finale then? Does anyone want to uh, kind of set that one up for us and talk about it? Gethsemane. So that's 518. Uh, it aired in Mar- uh, May of uh, May 18th in 1997. I can read the, the quick synopsis. Uh, Scully is called before the board again <laughs> and reveals that she believes Mulder's work on the X-Files was a fraud led through a manipulation. Scully begins to explain how the lie was developed and how Mulder was a victim of his own beliefs. What happens to Mulder when he learns the truth? Thoughts on this one? Mm, yeah, it's it's an intimidating episode to talk about, uh, but uh, I, I do like the fact that it's a nested story where, you know, it's it's really Scully's narration that we're listening to, so we don't know if what we're watching is her perspective or what actually happened. Uh, and um, I, I, I think that budgetarily it was very impressive. Yeah. Like it, it's clearly shot somewhere cold and I, I'm sure the caves that they get into aren't really ice caves, but it is. The, well, they built that set inside of a freezer storage. <laughs> I was reading about that. Oh, that was one of the coolest things. I was like, man, I, I, I have these discs somewhere. I need to pull them out and see if there's a special feature about like that. That would be I, awesome. If you if you have the original DVD releases, I have, like yeah. I have, there's no extras. Oh, crud! What? Very disappointing. Ah. The extras are like, um, those, those, like the commercial. There's no, nothing useful. I would only ever buy them on oh, sale. Stinks. But those things were like almost a hundred bucks when they first came. You remember that? No. Yes, they were. Features. Oh, I do. Yeah, yeah I know. Oh, yeah. like behind criteria. Um, well, 
I, it, it, yeah, no, I, I like. It, I was so disappointed because I thought, oh, I'll have all kinds of great information. Like basically, the books you got will have way more information on behind the scenes stuff than my standard definition DVDs. Mm. Well, uh, one cool thing about this episode is is it is actually set in Canada. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> and they perhaps so filmed in Baltimore. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> the, now the actors have an excuse yeah. for their Canadian accents. Yeah, it's it's when this when it's subtitled Canada, I was like, what? We filmed it in Tunisia, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a cool story. Um, some mountain climbers uh, discover a um, an alien body, and they c- uh, call Mulder in, um, but then somebody jacks the the body, and and uh, that's kind of where the, the mystery begins. And that's kind of all I remember off the top of my head. This is the one, yeah, it's in the cave and, and someone shoots everybody in their tents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, okay. It's, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not the most cliffhangery. Oh, no, wait, no, how is, no, oh, he's no, dead again. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, my note was that none, nobody's family member dies in this cliffhanger. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> also, I, I, I don't like, so the, in the Scully plot, she's talking with her family I really mm. don't like the way her brother treats her. No. Oh, He's, that is my like, note. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it is not her responsibility to take care of everybody else's emotions surrounding her death. She's the one dying. Cut her a break. Right. While well, he's going off in the military, leaving their mom, right. but Scully's supposed to quit her job and stay with her. Oh, I he was so mad. really smarmy. And he remind. I've seen him before, but I, he, he reminded me of the actor. I think it's Toby Emmerich who plays, uh, Plays Truman's friend in the Truman Show. He's like, "Would I ever lie to you, Truman?" He just he comes off oh, that guy. That guy uh, even when he's playing a nice character, yeah. he always comes off like a smarmy a hole. And that's kind of what I was getting <laughs> off of this guy. I was getting the Tommy Emmerich vibe, and I was like, Whoa. "Yeah." And from Scully's perspective, I mean, it, it's I mean, he's basically like filling the dad position, and he's in the military too. Except he doesn't seem to empathize with her condition at all which is it's a double punch it just know. yeah it's odd <laughs> and that's not you can't even chalk that up to oh it was the 90s like no people had sympathy for yeah <laughs> cancer victims you know well i think that's one of the things insane. they're trying to underscore is like we've seen Mulder's level of sympathy for her throughout the season and he, here's a person supposed to be close to her and it's just like okay sign these forms <laughs> Yeah, uh, I do like. I think you know, in episode in season three, we had the um, uh, Jose Chung's from Outer Space episode that sort of uh, spoofed those Fox alien autopsy. Like you know, yes. I, Mulder, I found a zipper, but here, <laughs> here we get it done, sort of straight up. You know, straight up in a sense where they're using this. You know, all it's come down to: we're going to find the truth, and the truth is exactly what everyone's always thought it was, right? At least you know, initially, it's a little gray alien on a table, <laughs> and they're going to them open it. They're like, <laughs> really, all the black oil and all the clones and the bees, and it's this, it's the little you know, this little dude on the table, and of course that that's immediately suspect but i mean i enjoyed the episode i think it is fun i the only issue and i think we can talk about this because i mean i don't do you got i do remember seeing this one while it aired oh i I don't think the question was is because at the end of the episode scully tells the board Mulder is dead and we see that at the beginning episode Mm -hmm. an implication of course what we don't see the one thing that would have made us you know 100 confirm is Mulder laying on the ground dead 
Um, yeah, if, you, if you don't see a body, the person's not dead. You don't. And, but so we don't, what we, and the problem is I was watching this on Hulu. So the next episode of season five started and I was like trying to write my notes here be like, don't talk about what, because I couldn't remember where one part ended, but it, I think it was probably clear to almost everyone watching the show that the, and I don't think this is much of a spoiler, obviously that Mulder's not dead. The question just is what actually happened. But I almost, I almost wish it had been more convincing because they, it's something that it, it feels so rushed. I don't know if you guys felt this way. This ultimately becomes a three-parter, right? Because there are two more parts to it in season five, but I think I would have preferred maybe two parts of this on this end, on the end of season four, as opposed to season five and a little bit more time spent with the con, the, the possibility that this body is really going to somehow uh, irrefutably mean something to him you know what i mean like the discovering that this is just one more ploy by the government he's found that so much of this is the case that is it his need to believe in extraterrestrials or his need to believe that something big and something clandestine happened uh i mean believing in that is almost harder than believing in the aliens it just seems like hmm. oh the aliens aren't real does that really change his motivations who's always been out what happened to my sister you know it it just it's a lot for me to swallow that, okay, hey, that alien was fake. So much of what they've done to us already has been subterfuge that would he really give up like that? And, I, of course, he doesn't, but the idea that the episode wants us at the end, I, I, I feel like something else could have been done there uh, to make us believe that Mulder might have really harmed himself. Because I don't know about you guys, it, it, there, there are other episodes where it was more likely that something would have happened to him, like the one where he was poisoned by the water, you know, when he was flipping out and Skinner had to put him in like a chokehold. Mm-hmm. But like oh, yeah. right. those yeah. episodes, I was more concerned for him than necessarily by the end of this one. And I just feel if you're going to do this cliffhanger, if you're going to do the Mulder killed himself, I think you have to show him. In his, honestly, his, his state of despair in the episode right before this was more convincingly um, despondent than what happens here. He wouldn't have left Scully to deal with her cancer at the end. That's what my thought was, is that, okay, maybe if she had died, he might have done that. But no, he wouldn't do that. But they do love their cliffhangers on the X-Files. Yeah. (laughs) See you in six months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and again, you're setting up your headed towards the movie. It's it's not a bad one to work with. I just don't think, I mean, even when it aired, I mean, I think we looked at each other like, yeah, right, you know. They're just there's so many more cliffhangers. The problem is they couldn't have they couldn't have Scully collapse again. At least not yet. He's got to wait at least one episode to collapse again. And and the sorry the the movie's not after this episode. It's after season five. It's not, we're saying it's not after this episode. Right. It's filmed. Or it's halfway episode, through five. It, no, it happens at the end. It's um yeah. the, the the whole season occurs and then the movie comes out in June okay. and then uh. The next, yeah, you know, then season six, of course, starts back up. Now, what I think is interesting is if I remember correctly, season five starts pretty late. Like it starts at like in October or November, and that might have been because of filming the movie. Like it, uh, this one started, you know, I think that a lot of the new shows will start up in September, and then X Files season this season started in like October tenth and or October fourth. So I just I think it kept getting kind of later, you know, each time. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah, Redux is in November of '97. Yeah, be, like for example, season three started in September twenty t- uh, second, and then season four starts in like October 
uh, fourth. And then I think after that, that's when it's, you know, at least for this next season, probably because of the schedule involving the movie that they end up pushing it back just a little bit. And I think it has less episodes too by one or uh, two, but honestly, season five is one of my favorites. I'm really looking forward to talking about that. Um, and I'm, uh, I, 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 I'll put this in and we can always cut it, <laughs> but I really want to find a way to do a, like, if, even if it, even if it's us watching the movie and then putting the movie on and turning the sound off and then just commenting on it as we go along, mm. I would oh, be that, a commentary that. track. Yes, That's awesome. I think that would yeah. be a lot of fun. What do you think about that, Victor and uh, Karen? I love it. I love That'd it. Be fun. Yeah, no, that, yeah. That, that that sounds amazing. Um, yeah, I definitely would like sounds to try. That. It's 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 just off being twenty five years since the movie came out. We're Ooh, just one really? year short. What? It's 20, 24 years, right? It came out in nineteen ninety eight. Am I wrong in that? Oh, I, oh. I guess not. Yeah, holy smokes! And, I'm old. Yeah, right. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, I'm all for ambitious, it. but yeah, I'm already. I'm so psyched after the end of this season. I'm ready to jump right back in. In fact, I've already watched the redo episode because it started playing immediately after this one, and I think that after <laughs> yeah. that we get into the the that episode that takes place in the forest uh, in the Everglades or whatever. So oh. um, oh, it's, yeah. it's all kind of uphill <laughs> detour. Yeah, so. But hey, yeah. final thoughts really quick about this season. Ultimately, I really liked it. Uh, I liked the darkness, but I what I liked is Mulder and Scully and their relationship kind of shining through the darkness. And that's what I really appreciate about the next couple seasons is you get to see that more prominently, even if it's not happening in every single scene of the episodes. Well, yeah, I will miss, miss, miss you guys until next month. Um, really love recording these episodes. And uh, yeah, I think it was a very strong season. A couple of dips, but uh, mostly just peaks. I mean, I can't believe they sustained this quality once again. Four years in a row. It's just incredible. Um, And uh, yeah, my hat's off to them. I have nothing but admiration for these guys. Yeah, sort of similar sentiments. A lot of shows don't pull off, you know, three really good seasons. We know we're going to get at least five or six out of this one. Um, And again, when, you know, we picked episodes that we said were our favorites and we omitted some, you know, this is like, like the, the dips in this season, except for maybe the, 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 the second episode or no third episode, like they're all seven out of tens. And we picked to talk about the 10 out of tens, you know, there's yeah when it's, it's, it's all good. Some of it is really good. There, there, uh, there's hardly an episode not worth watching in this season. Yeah, and I, I feel the same way. I can't wait to start season five. I don't think there was any episode this season that was like stunningly bad or anything, you know. And, and like the ones that I didn't care for, ones that were sort of like middle of the road or just like, yeah, you could have worked a little harder. Or what we mentioned, something that that you know, hey, this hasn't aged well. But I think right. there's nothing stunningly awful. And I will admit that in a lot of shows, including shows I really enjoyed over the years. I'm looking at Buffy the Vampire Slayer, man. You started getting some like head scratchingly bad episodes <laughs> where you're like, wow, well, you, you I wish up, I could completely forget you ever made that. <laughs> you brought up Supernatural. Yeah. Well, you probably could have ended that show uh, eight, ten years sooner. They were, you know, I think Supernatural. <laughs> eight to ten years. No, wasn't it on for 16 years? It, it's been on as long as I was married, and you're about right. Yes, it was. It started wow. in 2005, and they they even more so than this show had a perfected tradition. The apocalypse, the freaking apocalypse. Okay, you're going to 
dovetail in the apocalypse five seasons, and then <laughs> it would have been a perfectly honestly, the way it ended was perfect. I thought, like in terms of like the season five, you're done. They came back as season oh, yeah, six, know, my... and they tricked me by saying, "Oh, we're going to bring Mitch Pileggi in." So yeah, hey, that's great. He's going to be grandpa. <laughs> and, He's and, like two episodes. Yeah, and and Stephen Williams is in there too. And then you know, it's hey. the, yeah, you, you, what could go wrong? Well. Uh, you go for like what twenty seasons or whatever they went for. That's <laughs> well, Mitch Pileggi. I think I said Nick Pileggi like, like three hours ago. I my apologies to Mister Pileggi. Please don't beat me up. <laughs> I'll just I take Nick out and you'll just say Pileggi. I'll just say, <laughs> I'll record my voice. <laughs> It'll just suddenly switch. It'll be like bad dubbing. Mitch. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're really looking forward to that. I think we are definitely going to. Uh, what we're going to do is make sure that there's a, a, a smaller gap between this episode and season five. And our goal will be to get season the the movie X Files Fight the Future. We're going to look to do a commentary track for the movie. And I remember, I remember going to that movie vividly. That's crazy that it's 25 years ago. I actually saw it twice in the theaters. Yeah. Wow. Um, when it came out, I don't, I don't know. I think it was just because, hey, it's the X Files. It's on the big screen, and this may never happen again. And as it turns out, it did happen again. But I didn't see that one twice in the theater. We'll just pretend uh, it didn't yeah. happen. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, I want to r- uh, wrap this up and go around the uh, go around and let everyone uh, let us know where the audience can find you and any other things that you want to plug or mention. Dave, let's go ahead and start with you. Uh, okay, so when I'm not doing X Files or um, the odd, uh, what what was the? I was on. You did like a music and horror show at the same time. Oh, Strange Frequencies. Right. Yeah. If I'm not on Strange Frequencies or the X Files, you can find me at the Great Fright North. Uh, that's my podcast where I try to do uh, Canadian movies and movies from around the world. Uh, I just released an episode with uh james dean no not that one (laughs) the newer filmmaker and his movie fontaine and the vengeful nun who wouldn't die we talked about that for a bit Uh, it's a lot of fun check that out cool very cool i will put that in the show notes for the episode and i will throw it up over on uh phantom galaxy facebook as well which i think we put it up there but we'll i think i did already too yep cool you can put it up there as much as you want. So, okay, so, um, Yeah, very cool. Thanks, Dave. And I would love – I was uh, talking to Brian Scott recently, and he sent me all the pictures of the Star Wars memorabilia in his basement. And I know oh, we one coming up. Crazy. I really want to get – I want to get Brian and, and Dave on an episode and maybe go through and just cool. like do Star Wars A New Hope. Start there. See how it goes. Oh, man. I, we could talk forever. This, what this show needs is more series, right? Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> leads me into Victor, go ahead and um, let us know where they can find you. I would listen to that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess the best place to find me is a uh, Rodriguez.wordpress.com. That's my website. Uh, and um, you can also follow me at dime store Caesar on Twitter or Instagram and uh, it's it's pretty much identical feeds on those things. But um, yeah, if you if you just want to talk about the X Files or what have you, um, just uh, follow me on one of those, and we can start trading messages. But yeah, I had a great time. Thanks. Yeah, and like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you, your book, The Sound of Fear. My my statement: Hey, what I made a great X Files episode is. True of just about every story in there. Maybe one or two. There's a couple of medieval ones that maybe we'd have to, to tinker with a little bit. But otherwise, I think, yeah, man, oh, that thanks, would fit man. in perfectly. Yeah. And 
And Victor and I have a have a Phantom Galaxy podcast coming up that we have to hammer the details out on involving. I guess you're still on board for that, right? Yeah, I can't uh, wait. Sh- short fiction and and book recommendations and things like that. We had such a great response to the episode where we did our top ten horror novels that I, I uh, think that'll be that'll be a lot of fun. So. And Karen will be coming on soon for the illustrated fan to talk about depressing mm. animated films. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be so much fun. You've done the, the hard work with the, with watching the plague dog, so you know it's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> so Karen, and, and anything you want to mention or plug or anything like that? Uh, just thank you for letting me come on as a super fan and talk about the X Files. And um, I am on Facebook in the Phantom Galaxy. Uh, group in the LOTC group and I think last time you put a link to my episode I did with LOTC the cult classic yep. one that was a that'll still be there I, I just keep these things in a folder now Victor's has a giant list of <laughs> things. Dave Beckers is like I, I, oh, I would, cry, I would probably actually weep if I lost that and had to read to it you should just have his own podcast network basically the, the Dave Becker the Dr. Shock sure. like yeah Yes. Uh, it basically is. A Phantom Galaxy should just be a network of podcasts, really, right? This isn't one 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 show anymore. Yes. Oh, but. And then we did the the feeders uh, oh, review yes, on yes, our Christmas right, one. Christmas so one. someday there will be the feeders trilogy coming up. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, and as much as all of you've been on, I don't think any of you've been on the VOD roulette yet, where we just pick some movie off of Tubi or or Prime or something, and it usually has horrifying results. Uh, but that's always a good time. We just did one mm-hmm. recently, um, and it turned out that the Tubi original was actually the good movie. Go figure! Oh wow! <laughs> I know we're all we're all blown away by that. We're like, what happened? You know, it's in that vein of like has the Tremors, Eight Legged Freaks, Gremlins okay. kind of feel to it. So. Cool. Technically a Christmas movie, and a lot better than Feeders, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> that's not that yeah, hard yeah. to do. Um, well. I was just disappointed that Feeders wasn't better. <laughs> did you actually watch feeders or you're just messing with us no I, I was just reacting to your guys reactions <laughs> <laughs> what a waste of a title right this was feeders it, two sleigh bells i'm telling you it was entertaining i never like recorded my tv so many times oh i know and you got you almost have to watch it just for the like crappy half-assed x-files theme they try to do when he goes outside <laughs> and it's clear like someone in a keyboard's like and it's all like and it's almost like they just didn't have enough more finger you know when a kid tries to move their hand around and hit like five keys at once but they have to twist their arm it's like you get the impression that's what someone is doing there's a scene where the kids it's clearly someone's real family and the kid just rolls over and like farts in the middle of the scene like you know what we're gonna leave that in (laughs) i think the best was like dave was like dave becker was like like not live tweeting, but like he was responding in the Facebook chat and he's like, that kid just ripped ass on screen. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, Dave watched it. Yeah. Bill has been in touch with the directors. I, if I can find a way to do that in a way that doesn't insult them, I'll mm. totally do it. But I'm, I'm, I worry about my self-control. <laughs> yeah. Not, you know, I feel like they may not have the same sense of irony that we have about it. Maybe not. Yeah, yeah. Well, some of those some of those creators do. I mean, some you know, of them do. You'll you have can to be honest with yourself, and you got to tell me what you think. All right, I'll look up the trailer after we're done here. Feeders <laughs> two, feeders two. two. Yeah, feeders uh, one. I haven't. Yeah. Maybe after they crank out a couple of good ones, then you do the feeders episode. 
Yeah, that it's <laughs> never happening. <laughs> I don't think so either. This is this is I I think I can almost objectively say this may be the worst movie I've ever seen. Like wow. like objectively in terms of like filmmaking, the guts to just put it out there and say, "Hey, this is uh, people can see this and I my name is on it," you know. Um, there are there are definitely more repugnant movies. There are more morally bankrupt movies. Right. This is not one of those. But just objectively, like, could you make this movie worse? <laughs> this is worse than Ed Wood. Oh. Have you, have I you saw ever a seen clip. The... Sorry, go ahead. There was a um, a movie that someone took a clip of called Velocipaster. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm thinking that might be worse. Well, the thing about Velocipaster, though, is that oh, you've seen it. Everybody's okay. seen Velocipaster. Where have you been? Oh, okay. It I'm says a- he's <laughs> a man of the claw. How can you go wrong with that tagline? <laughs> I mean, don't don't get me wrong. The movie's complete garbage. But the one thing about Velocipaster is now, if I invited that director on, I would know a hundred percent that he knew his movie was garbage. Like watching it, <laughs> it's like a lark. But the feeders thing is just. And it was made in 98, so it's got that, like, mm. this was the last VHS we had, and we had to tape over, like, the, you know, Suzanne Summers workout video or something. It just has that, like, grungy feel to it. And I I think I sent uh, Karen a picture of it, like, where I snapshot the guy in his mullet and his, like, taped together glasses. I'm like, this is so, and his, like, like multicolored look like that zebra gum shirt he was wearing. <laughs> and I, I, I think I sent a message saying something like if I truthfully, if I didn't know better and I knew for certain that I didn't accidentally make a movie in the late nineties, that I, I will be concerned right now. Cause that might be me. Um, but- and they just made the third one, like literally just made it like last year. Like they made a, they sequel. may have made it in the time it took us to record this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I will cut most of that out because, <laughs> and again, if I can have a way, if I can determine, like you said, if I can ascertain that they, that, that they understand it's garbage, that maybe we can have them on. But I, I'm concerned that we might just upset people and that's not yeah. why I'm doing Offend any of this. Them, yeah. So, it's, yeah, it's, I don't hard, know. it's hard to make movies. It is, it is hard. And I don't it, like, I think all of us, Bill, myself, you know, uh, like, honestly, if I really don't like a movie and it's clear that someone was really earnest and tried hard on it, I probably just won't comment. But with bad movies, I feel like I had, it's, if you're affectionate about it, it's like, is it okay to admit that it's terrible? I kind of think it is, but there's that moment of, do the people know it's that bad? Oh and man, then, this is way worse than I thought you were talking about. <laughs> oh, you're, you're two looking sleigh at it bells. Right now? <laughs> yeah, I'm watching the trailer while I'm talking to you with no sound. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You see, you see what I mean? Like it, I, it there's, it's not even a question of whether it's good. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, oh, the mo- there's a movie called Things, which must much be must be worse. These movies look similar. Like this looks like yeah, things. It does look like things. I think Ugh. this is worse than things. I okay. The dog was the best actor. I agree. I'm not sure. gonna watch this. There's a scene though, <laughs> but you almost see. This is the part that you almost want to watch at least a couple minutes of it because it's so. There's a scene where the cat is attacked. And when you see the aliens kill the cat, it's just a picture of a cat printed out and they've like <laughs> thrown like syrup or something on top of it. Like it's a two dimensional, like, like right. drawing of a have, cat. I guess I do have to watch this then. The aliens are literally, and when I mean literally, I mean, this is how they were constructed. They are, are a sock tied over a tennis ball attached to a stick with an angry face drawn on it. Meaning yeah. like two dots and a wavy line. 
Now there's a there's like a Santa shooting a toy laser gun. Oh yeah, I forgot the Santa was in it. It looks like the evolution of the of the arm from Twin Peaks the Return. Like that's what all of the aliens look like. Like a little stick with a circular head. Oh man, I'm I'm looking at IMDb and all the all the human actors are all s- screaming. Like yeah, yeah, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> it is weird. You, there's a, and there, the interactions between the husband and the wife. It's like it's so brittle, and the, the dialogue. Oh. He's like, he's like, what are you getting me this year? And he's like, what do you get for the woman who already has everything? And she's just like, more. But they're barely. <laughs> their eyes are half lidded, and they're just staring into the mid distance. And then that's when he leaves. She's like, I'm such a lucky woman. That's when the kid rolls over and just farts. But it's not. <laughs> it's not even like it zooms in on that. It's just something that happens. Like it's just wow. like okay. But yeah, I think this is the one too. He's like, well, Daddy, I can't wait for Christmas if Daddy doesn't lose his job. <laughs> like it's his oh, and his breath. yeah, his boss is the best. <laughs> Yeah, he's just, he's like looking up aliens on his lunch break, and his boss is like, you're a piece of garbage. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to feel any connection, though, because of just how, like, disconnected from reality. I felt like I was, like, Karen, was it you? Somebody was sick. Was it you that was watching this? It was me. And you were, like, all hopped up on cough medicine or something? I thought I must be high because the <laughs> movie was, I said I did not take an edible before I started watching this, but I swear this is affecting me in a weird way. Probably should have. Wow, those old, like the, those terrible shot on video movies, they just they just do make you feel weird. Yeah, you do feel mm. like drugs or no? It's like, this. oh my god, am I supposed to be watching this? Or like, if I if if I watch five more minutes, of this, I'm gonna black out and wake up like Mulder with two dead bodies next to me. <laughs> and there's that sound that's throughout the whole movie that just it uh, is very. I like when he looks weird. out and he sees a spaceship and it's like coming down and shooting a tractor beam, and he goes, "Huh?" And he just like what? <laughs> he's like, "Oh." So when Santa shows, Santa Santa does make an appearance. And his like reindeer is made of wood or something. I think and it, he basically is like you know in the Simpsons when like Barney had to pretend to be like Santa Claus and he was burping and had the beard on. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Oh man! Now you have to watch it, right? I am kind of curious. You only need Even to see about a couple half of, minutes. of it. You, half half of the first four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for joining. Uh, That's the Phantom Galaxy signing out. Bye. 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 If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Mm-hmm.